Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to Kadapan here. I'm Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism, and I'm here with Oh, wait, was that the cue? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's Hi, it's me, Mia Long. I'm also here and apparently missing cues instantly. I don't know. It, it is barbarically early for me. So, <laughs> yay. <laughs> barbarically? What, what time is it? Uh, like 10 o'clock. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Look, it it, it 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 would have been fine if I wasn't up till 3 a.m. last night dealing with a session of minor crises. Oh, damn. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it's all right. Otherwise, if it wasn't a crisis, I would have, like, flexed my early bird supremacy. But, you know, <laughs> I've been up since, uh, like, 7, 6.30, something like oh, that. Oh, no. I took a whole jog. <laughs> <laughs> now, nah, but um, I just did my Duolingo this morning. <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. today I wanted to shed light on some really interesting history, I think, of the anarchist movement in Egypt. Um, I've been reading this book called uh, Anarchism and Syndicalism in the Colonial and Post-Colonial World. And there's a section oh, yeah. uh, um, by a guy named Anthony Gorman that I found really interesting. I just had to share. It's really specific to the anarchist, um, Egyptian anarchist history of like the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and honestly, I find that whole period to be very interesting, partially because I am a dreaded paradox games fan and um i enjoy my little you know vicky three my little you know i I like that that period in history um honestly any period of history prior to world war ii i find interesting everything world war ii is just like a complete bore to me and then everything past world war ii is like 
cool. But it seems like the World War II period itself, not my thing. You know, um, like tell me about the Phoenicians, tell me about the Phrygians, tell me about the <laughs> uh, Carthaginians, but I don't really care about the Axis and which tank was the superior tank and all those different things that a lot of these um, quote-unquote history buffs into. Um, not to piss anyone's cereal, of course, whatever, you know, floats your boat. But for me, I really like that pre-World War II sort of stuff. Um, and the Victorian era is one particularly interesting point uh, in history. And a lot of things were happening in that time. Um, industrial revolution was shaken up around the world. Colonization was going on uh, and the effects of that would, you know, reverberate for centuries to come. And the true successor to the Roman Empire, in my opinion, the Ottoman Empire, um, was kind of going through a series of crises. And Egypt, which was under the Ottoman Empire, um, and then broke free of the Ottoman Empire, had its own stuff going on. So... I don't want to get too much into that whole mess, but I want to give some context because, you know, this is, an, this is a history episode. It might be a two-part history episode, in fact. <laughs> um, so let's just start back in the ni- late 19th century. Um, so there's this foreign working community in Egypt, thanks to Muhammad Ali, um, no relation. And he was the ruler of <laughs> Egypt from 1805 to 1849. This guy was all about modernizing stuff like the military, the state administration, and the economy. So he invited skilled folks to come to Egypt and lend their labor. Oh, isn't he the guy that Napoleon fought for a little bit? I think so. I think so. I mean, who who didn't Napoleon fight? <laughs> I'm sure if he could have, Napoleon would have fought like the dinosaurs. Yeah, Napoleon fighting cavemen on the moon, like things. things well, of this and speaking nature. of Napoleon, I really don't appreciate how. I mean. No disrespect to Joaquin Phoenix, but wasn't Napoleon like in his 20s when he rose up the ranks military and all that? Like I could be mistaken. I could be confusing him with the other Napoleon, but I'm pretty sure Napoleon was not Uh, an old man when he was making a lot of the moves he was making. Let's see. Again, I could be wrong. Well, he, he was he was born in 1769. I'm I'm leaving I'm I'm leaving the math as of this as an exercise for the reader. Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what really throws me off is that there's like multiple napoleons and oh, so i God, mix up yeah. the histories of the different napoleons <laughs> um reasonable but if it wasn't that napoleon i know for sure one of the napoleons in question was like relatively young when he was making some of his moves like in his early to mid 20s when he's rising up the ranks kind of thing um, yeah but I could be entirely mistaken. I'm sure somebody will correct me. Um, I don't know. None of this is relevant to <laughs> what this episode is about. But uh, yeah, so Muhammad Ali, again, no relation. His successors, Said and Ismail, took things to the next level after he passed on with some major infrastructure projects. They were building railways, they were expanding canals, they were going wild with the urban development. And they needed a bunch of skilled workers for a lot of that. So they brought in Italians, Greeks, Syrians, Dalmatians. And of course, they used their local Egyptian laborers as well. Many of those workers came to work on the famous Suez Canal, of course. And that 
required a massive workforce. Yeah, um, many of whom died. Uh, who, yeah, canal I mean, digging, like like canal digging. I don't know if, if you're digging a, a canal, you might as well high mortality rate profession. Yeah, yeah. yeah like you, you, you might as well dig your own grave too. Like, like dig, yeah. dig, dig it before you start, so they can bury your body halfway through. Yes, it's, it's like not gallows humor. It's like canal humor. You know, it's like yeah. oh, we're digging this canal. <laughs> we're gonna die in here anyway. Uh, it's kind of similar thing occurred in um the digging of the Panama Canal. Uh, although in that case, they brought in a lot of Bayesian and other Caribbean workers to yeah uh you know set that up. Um, and actually, the Dagan of the Panama Canal was responsible for, like, was responsible for, I think, a, a third of the, of the Bayesian economy at one point. Uh, wow. Because of the remittances that were being sent back to their families at home. Um, wow. That's a whole different chapter in history. But yeah, so this, this massive and diverse workforce is bringing, of course, not just their labor, but ideas. Because whenever you get people together, they start talking. Um, Egypt was already considered something of a place of refuge for political exiles. So it's not very surprising that anarchism was starting to gain popularity around that time, particularly with the Italians in Egypt. Yeah, that, now, that's, course, that's the thing. That's the thing in this period is like you, you can literally track the spread of anarchism like by where there are a bunch of Italian workers like this happens in <laughs> Argentina too. Mm. It's like anywhere there are Italians, anarchy spreads. Yeah. It's like, it's a me, anarchism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's going to set somebody off. Um, my apologies to the Italian community. I, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, but look, they, they, had, they hadn't invented fascism yet. This is back when the Italians were still cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm probably going to get a letter. Hopefully, you know, there's nothing else attached to it. Um, <laughs> Italians... Already had a history with the anarchist movement, as we know. Um, I mean, some people would, of course, be familiar with folks like Eric Malatesta. So there's no surprises there. Um, labor and political radicalism caught sparks first in the Italian Worker Society, um, or Societa Operao Italiana, in 1860, which was formed to look out for the interests of its members. And later on, in the mid-1870s, you had these veterans from Garibaldi's campaigns and by the way, Garibaldi was one of the figures responsible for the Italian unification. Um, and then you also had other radicals forming thought and action, a political association with Massinian principles. Massini, by the way, Giuseppe Massini was an Italian Republican who advocated for liberty and democracy and class collaboration and all that jazz. Uh, Marx once called him an everlasting old ass, which is just really funny. <laughs> and I had to include that there. <laughs> Uh, uh, he's just like me for real. Anyway, um, and then in 1876, a more radical splinter group became an official section of the first international in Alexandria, which is one of the earliest attempts to create a worldwide association of workers and socialist groups. I don't know if it could happen. He has ever discussed like the history of the internationals before, but it gets messy. Um, <laughs> oh God. It's, yeah. It gets messy, it gets catty, it gets... Like, we had to spill that tea at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking wild. Like, especially especially once you get into, like, the 17 different fourth internationals. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's a time. Like, the, 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 the second international is such a disaster that Hosni Mubarak is part of it when he gets overthrown. Like, it's a, it's, it's, it's a good time. And by a good time, I mean an incredibly bad time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Honestly, um, I just have to throw my head back and laugh quite heartily 
when I, I hear folks talking about, you know, why can't the left unite? You know, like, wh- wh- where's the leftist unity? Why can't we just come to Like, nah, we, <laughs> this has been taking place since 19th century. You know? My my absolute favorite version of this is people being people talk people being like ah Marx Marx wouldn't want there to have been so much discord on the left. It's like have you ever read any Marx? Like that that <laughs> that is a man whose writing is about sixty percent yelling at someone whose ideas he's also stolen like by volume. Like one of his most yeah. famous like one of the things that you you get assigned to read from Marx in college is the German ideology, which is like four hundred pages of him being annoyed by people whose ideas are slightly different than him. Is, it's like like this is this is this is an ancient yeah. tradition the the irony of marx calling somebody else an everlasting old ass will not be lost on me <laughs> um <laughs> and and quite frankly this idea of oh marx wouldn't want this marx wouldn't want that that really comes from that sort of messiahification of marx i just coined that term you know you can send me my flowers in the mail because essentially what people are doing is treating Marx and Marx ideas and Marxism as just like Christianity 2.0. You know, it's kind of like how, you know, people would have been saying like, oh, Jesus wouldn't want all this division in the church, except he just replacing Jesus with Marx and the church with the left. Yeah, like Marx has this famous line where he goes, like if, if uh, he's responding to like the first like French Marxists and he goes, if this is Marxism, then I am not a Marxist. Oh yeah, <laughs> and then everyone proceeded to ignore him and call themselves Marxists. And I was like, "Well, this is great. Things have gone. This is yeah, yeah." yeah. I mean, even even great. in their lifetimes, all these figures that we respect now, they didn't really like their admirers. Like <laughs> Malatesta was quite embarrassed that he had fans. I I recall. Yeah. No, it, 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 to be clear, to be clear, that is that is the appropriate reaction to having fans. It is a terrifying true. thing. Uh, <laughs> right, true. Flee in terror. Exactly, exactly. But back to Alexandria, right? Where the first international's first official section, one of its sections came about. And it was one of the earliest attempts to create a worldwide association of workers and socialist groups. And it expanded and it formed sections in Cairo and in Port Said and in Ismailia or Ismailia, Ismailia. Um, And they even had the idea of spreading socialist propaganda in different languages like Italian and Greek and Turkish and Arabic to reach more folks in the quote unquote East. They want to take the ideas of the first international beyond just European communities and, you know, try and reach out to the locals. Unfortunately, for those familiar with the history of the first international, it fizzled out. So, you know, they couldn't really fully execute their plans. But, you know, you got to give them credit for trying to make a difference beyond their own little circles. Meanwhile, Egypt was in the midst of a deep political crisis. The military was pissed because of the disastrous Egypto-Ethiopian war. The upper ranks, the civil service, the army, and the business world had become dominated by Europeans, who were paid much more than native Egyptians. The country's inability to service its debt from costly infrastructure projects and lavish spending by Ismail, its rule at the time, led to European control over its treasury in 1876. And under European treasure, um, pressure, Ismail was deposed in 1879, replaced with his son Taufik, who aimed to basically satisfy Egypt's creditors by any means necessary. And so this tumultuous political climate provided both challenges and opportunities for the anarchists in Egypt. A revolt led by an Egyptian officer of the Egyptian army, Ahmed Urabi, 
sort of deposed Taufik, established a constitutional government and end British and French influence over the country. Although he was characterized as anti-foreign, Urabi received support from some foreign elements, including the very same Italian workers in Alexandria and a lot of the anarchists in the area. Um, now, as we know, anarchists are not really advocates of nationalism, though they will fight for national liberation causes. So anarchists and nationalists found themselves on the same side when it came to fighting against European imperialism in Egypt. So when the British were causing trouble, anarchists like Malatesta teamed up with nationalists led by Urabi to resist foreign domination. However, the British and French governments, who were intent on protecting their investments and nationals, confronted Urabi, which resulted in British forces bombarding Alexandria and eventually occupying the country in 1882. Throughout the early years of British occupation, the anarchist movement in Egypt faced both internal divisions and factionalism, both internal divisions and factionalism, similar to what was happening in other parts of the world. Anarchists and socialists had been uneasy comrades under the umbrella of the international during the 1870s, but the defection of a particularly locally influential figure named Andrea Costa from Libertarian Socialism from Libertarian Socialism in 1879 caused a significant schism within the local movement. Let me reread that. <clears throat> so anarchists and socialists had been uneasy comrades under the umbrella of the international during the 1870s. But the defection of one particularly locally influential figure named Andrea Costa from the School of Libertarian Socialism in 1879 caused a significant schism within the local movement. And the movement also suffered other internal divisions, particularly with the enduring conflict between anti-organizationalists and anarcho-syndicalists on the role of collective association in achieving anarchist aims. Quote, until the end of the 19th century, the former trend appears to have been in the ascendancy. But with the growth of the labor movement, anarcho-syndicalists expanded their influence. Other disputes reflected the power of personalities. Hugo Parini, a key figure and staunch anti-organizationalist, was notorious for his uncompromising style and was a persistent obstacle to greater cooperation among anarchists. Not until after his death in 1906 was a national program of action agreed, which provided a solid basis for collaboration within the Egyptian movement. Now, I didn't find any writings by Hugo Perini himself um, to speak his piece, but it sounds like he might have been a everlasting old ass himself if, you know, after the moment he died, <laughs> they were able to finally come together and come to agreement on something. That means bro is like a, a significant obstacle to uh, the organizational <laughs> efforts. But, you know, he fought with his principles and he died by them. So, you know, some respect there. So until the end of the 19th century, the anti-organizationalists seem to have had the upper, upper hand. But with the growth of the labor movement, anarcho-syndicalists gained a lot more influence. Tut tut, leftist disunity strikes again. <laughs> the real downside of this history is that the anarchist movement was still quite European and quite male, and the rise in nationalist movements were not exactly helping matters. However, while the majority of anarchist women, there was a women's section uh, established in Cairo during the 1870s, so there was some female participation happening as well. You know, it's a real 
real Bobby moment there, you know, real win for feminism. The ethnic diversity of the anarchist movement in Egypt did expand over time, though. Although Italians remained the dominant group until World War I, the movement attracted Greeks, Jews, Germans, and various Eastern European nationalities. Arabophone Egyptians also began to play a lot more significant role, as seen in their involvement in industrial actions, educational activities, and anarchist meetings during the early 1900s. And the occupational backgrounds of these anarchists were just as diverse as their ethnicities. Skilled artisans, including carpenters, masons, tailors, and painters, were among the majority. Some came from the petit bourgeoisie, like grocers and tavern owners, while others were involved in trade or worked for merchant houses. And the movement also included professionals like doctors, lawyers, and journalists. By the late 19th century, the anarchist community started to shift its focus toward the new working class, such as cigarette workers, printers, and employees of large utilities like tramway companies. However, despite this diversity and despite all the calls for internationalism, local nationalist associations still held a lot of power because they provided their communities with welfare services and social events and all that. It's kind of like how immigrants uh, in new countries even today will typically like group together um, in enclaves and communities to share their culture and to share their uh, support economic and otherwise. Um, When you're in a situation where everyone around you is uh, perceived as foreign and you're seeking some measure of security and safety and also cultural preservation, that is a thing that immigrants tend to do. Um, And these workers were immigrants to Egypt and so they kind of did the same thing. Uh, Unfortunately, many of these national associations were controlled by bourgeois interests. Yeah. In the Greek (laughs) community, for example... The powers of the bourgeois oligarchy in funding and controlling community institutions really worked to keep workers in line with what the authorities wanted. Because if you stepped out of line from what, what this oligarchy wanted, you know, you kind of like lose access to those essential community institutions. And if you, try, if you still have like a family to take care of, a family that you might have brought to Egypt or started in Egypt or really just struggling to make ends meet or, you know, you're a fish out of water um, and you don't really know any other languages. You just know your own people. To be isolated like that is really a hazardous situation to be in. And so that's how they kept people in line. But as in terms of the European nationalists, there was also some rise in Egyptian nationalism that also had some sway. Originally, Egyptian nationalists called signs of militant labor as part of a European disease and alien <laughs> to the Egyptian context. Uh, Which, by the way, I've noticed a lot of right-wing organizations and movements tend to apply that pseudo-anti-imperial label to things. So you would see it with, for example, um, some right-wing African nationalist groups would describe the presence of homosexuality in the country as a consequence of European imperialism, European colonialism is completely foreign to any kind of African context, history, whatever, which is entirely false. But they do use that um, sort of like false anti-imperialism to uh, build up their power base and build up their reactionary base. So it's a pattern you kind of observe uh, a lot of these right-wing movements and particularly global South right-wing movements. 
Interestingly, though, the Egyptian nationalists who were calling militant labor a uh, European disease, their opinions turned around kind of quick when they saw how potent it was for exercising power. In 1909, the Watani Party openly backed the formation of the Manual Trades Workers Union, uh, which was a diverse body of Egyptian urban workers, um, because they recognized, the party finally recognized both the need to constitute a broader national community and the political potential of the workers in the struggle against British occupation. Now, before the Egyptian nationalists came around on this, the anarcho-syndicalists had already begun trying to attract more Egyptian workers into their internationalist anarchist struggle. They knew how they knew that to make a real impact, they had to connect with native Egyptian workers. But here's the thing, you know, uh, the international union structure wasn't always practical for them. Many occupations in Egypt were pretty much exclusive to Egyptians, and many occupations in Egypt were pretty much exclusive to Europeans. So forming those unions was easier said than done. But that didn't stop the anarchists from trying. You know, they saw the importance of promoting labor organization and militancy among the Egyptian working class. And so when the cab drivers in Alexandria went on strike in 1903, the anarchists were there to gas them up. The anarchists were, of course, trying to emphasize what the workers had in common, the lack of boundaries that labor has, that it doesn't care for things like nationality or religion or race, that all workers had the same needs, the same struggles, and the same aspirations for their well-being. Of course, the nationalists had their own political vision. So while anarchists emphasized international solidarity and shared interests, nationalists were resorting to nativist appeals and organizational tactics to splinter the labor movement and break up its internationalist orientation. To give them some credit though, the Watani party did recognize the importance of allying with foreign workers and urged Egyptian workers during the tram strike of 1911 to unite and strengthen yourselves and increase your numbers through combination and through unity with the European workers, your comrades. And then we get to 1919 and the quote-unquote 1919 revolution. Um, it's kind of a significant moment in Egyptian history and anarchists were there, so let's talk about it. In 1919, the British government imposed new taxes and restrictions on civil liberties, which further fueled the discontent and united Egyptians from various social, economic, and political backgrounds. The spark that ignited the revolution was the deportation of Egyptian nationalist leader Saad Saglul and other political figures by the British authorities for opposing their policies. In response, massive protests erupted across the country, with strikes, demonstrations, and civil disobedience becoming widespread. Egyptians from all walks of life, including workers, students, intellectuals, and peasants, took part in the movement. They were influenced in part by the strategies and tactics of the syndicalist presence in the region and abroad at the time. The revolution gained momentum and the demands of the protesters became more explicit, calling for full independence, a constitution, and an end to British rule. The British authorities initially tried to suppress the protests with force, which of course led to violent clashes and bloodshed. However, the resilience and unity of the Egyptian people ultimately forced the British government to recognize the scale of the uprising and the strength of the nationalist movement. In 1922, the United Kingdom unilaterally declared Egypt's independence, though the British continued to exert considerable influence over Egyptian affairs. One could argue that the specter of anarchism would rear its head again in Egypt's history. 
particularly during the Arab Spring in 2011, when anarchic tactics could be found across the Middle East and North Africa. In the next part, I'll be talking more about what anarchists were doing in Egypt in the late 19th and late 20th centuries. But for now, I hope that today's anarchists in Egypt and elsewhere can keep the flame of freedom burning. All power to all the people. Peace. Oh, and this has been Andrew. You can follow me on youtube.com slash andrewism and support the Patreon at patreon.com slash Andrew. See y'all next time. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to Could Happen Here. I'm Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism, and I'm here with Mia, who uh, didn't miss the missed the cutest. Hey, I'm learning. Awesome. Today, I just wanted to shed light on just some of the interesting history of the anarchist movement in Egypt. Uh, this is part two. Uh, the first part really just went into the historical context and progression and how the anarchist community emerged in Egypt, you know, fueled by this growing Mediterranean network of migration, labor mobility, and communication. Of course, it started with the Italian community, known for their anarchism in that time, uh, but they soon gained the support of other groups sharing a radical vision of social emancipation. Uh, I learned all this from the book Anarchism and Syndicalism in the Colonial and Post-Colonial World, um, particularly the section written by Anthony Gorman on Egyptian history. In the years leading up to the World War I, anarcho-syndicalism represented by the International Union played a leading role in organizing and developing a militant labor movement. Advocating for international solidarity among workers, they adapted well to Egypt's diverse society, embracing ethnic and religious pluralism and internationalism while opposing capitalism. Anarchists, along with socialists and liberals, contributed to the advancement of secular thought and Egyptian intellectual life, leaving a significant impact on their society. However, the anarchist movement faced challenges due to the state's coercion through surveillance, prosecution, and deportation. The authorities portrayed them as dissolute political adventurers pushing an alien ideology. Despite their achievements in formulating an anti-capitalist discourse and advocating for social emancipation, other forces, like the Egyptian Communist Party and the Egyptian National Movement, would take on some of the ideas with a louder and more prominent voice. Today I just want to give more details on the movement and what exactly they were doing in their heyday. Clearly, the anarchist movement in Egypt was not confined to the local. It was all about connecting with anarchists from different countries, making international friendships, and fighting for their shared ideals. The anarchists in Egypt got involved with the conference in Ververes and conferences in London and Italy and hung out with anarchists from Istanbul, Greece, Tunisia and more. Egypt became the spot for anarchists in the Eastern Mediterranean and they'd made connections all the way to the United States and South America. It's kind of interestingly playing a similar role to like early 1900s Japan in, in terms of the anarchist movement where, mm. yeah, it's, you know, you get, you get these sort of like regional hubs that develop and people sort of like move through and around them, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And Egypt being a hub, you know, a lot of big name anarchists were visiting. Oh, you know, big name. Uh, I'm talking people like Emile Claire, Cipriani, Elise Recluse, Erico Malatesta, Luigi Galliani, and Pietro Gori. And of course, with these agitators in the mix, the authorities got a little nervous. But the real lifeblood of the movement were not these influential figures. They were the publications that this community was producing and reading and distributing. The anarchists in Egypt didn't just read from newsletters all around the world, though that was a part of it. But they also contributed their own articles about what was happening in Egypt. They were connected, informed, and motivated by the international community they had built. They had a bunch of publications dedicated to workers' issues. 
uh, offering insights, debates, and discussions on common difficulties on matters of labor organization and strategy. Facilitated by an increasingly developed international transport system, particularly steamship services, the International Anarchist Press served as a vital channel for the dissemination and diffusion of the movement's ideas. It was the Anarchist Library before the Anarchist Library. In terms of how they went about organizing and propagating in Egypt, the anarchists there recognized the unique challenges of the local situation that they have to deal with. For the European anarchists, promoting their message of emancipation um, and combating the exploitation, ignorance, and injustice caused by capitalism, the state, and religious authority would be no easy task in a region where, for one, they're already being seen as part of the ongoing attempts of political domination by Western powers, uh, and also in a region with very deep historical religious divisions, you know, such as the Crusades and the British and French colonization. It's really one of the major projects, I suppose, the European anarchists needed to communicate to the local population was that their ire did not lay with Europeans as a whole. It lay primarily with the European ruling class. Um, and so when it came to critiquing societal issues, anarchists strongly attacked the evils of capitalism. And of course, that had the best reception among the Egyptian workers. Of course, this isn't to say that the European workers in Egypt were like completely in common with the Egyptian workers. Despite the fact that the ire of the Egyptian workers uh, should really lie primarily with the European work, um, ruling class that was responsible for the imperialization of their country and the exploitation of their people, the presence of the European workers did also contribute to the exploitation because those European workers were paid so much better than native-born workers, were able to experience certain privileges that the native-born workers did not have access to. Interestingly, although anarchists typically advocate for emancipation from all religious authorities, Islam wasn't specifically targeted in their literature. And there was probably a pragmatic consideration for whether anti-religious rhetoric would fly, considering they could just be deported because, of course, that was a crime. They still took on a hostile attitude towards the Egyptian state, though, condemning its coercive actions, surveillance culture, and abuse of power. But they didn't confront it head-on. Their program of action was far more focused on the goal of social transformation through the use of propaganda, education, and workers' associations. Because of the mixed conditions in Europe, in Egypt, the ideal of people of different races, religions, and nationalities united in solidarity had some real potency to it. So the internationalist mission was a very central component in their messaging at public conferences and at labor meetings. But it, it really was more so about the, the speaking, the propaganda of the word rather than the propaganda of the deed. In fact, interestingly, for that time, the anarchists in Egypt didn't really engage in much propaganda of the deed at all. Hmm. Uh, propaganda of the deed being, you know, political violence and assassination attempts. Uh, for those who know, you know, <laughs> a bit about the anarchists of that time, propaganda of the deed was what they were known for. <laughs> they had some some big name assassinations in the BIX. Um, for example, Franz Ferdinand, I believe, was assassinated by an anarchist. Wait, no, hold on. Franz Ferdinand is the guy who was killed by Gavirio Princep, the guy who started World War One. Right. 
Um, I've seen some sources call him a nationalist. Some sources call him uh, an anarchist. I don't think he was an anarchist. Yeah, he was exposed to socialist, anarchist, and communist writings when he was younger um, through school and through his roommate, Danilo Illich. But he was more so associating with nationalists, um, particularly when he got around to assassinating Franz Ferdinand. Nazis and fascists did call him an anarchist and a socialist. But it seems as though, although he was inspired by uh, nationalists and anarchists, he was more so in the nationalist side of the equation. Yeah, I mean, they did kill a few Habsburgs, which always, al- al- always a good thing to have less Habsburgs <laughs> in the world. You can, you can, you can, you can make a chart over time, and one axis <laughs> is good, and the other axis is Habsburg. You can see that they're inversely correlated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Habsburgs are something else. But yeah, the anarchists in Egypt, not too much into the political violence and assassinations. They were focused really on promoting the ideas through spoken and written communication, you know, like public meetings, demonstrations, and the press. And the press was really the crucial axis of their efforts in disseminating the ideas and sustaining their identity. They had local, popul- um, they had local publications like La Tribuna Libera, L'Operao, Lux and others which served to spread anarchist thought and discuss ideas and issues of social emancipation. Um, the weekly paper La Parau mostly promoted anarcho-syndicalism and then the paper Il Domini came up and decided to adopt a more stridently libertarian tone. Um, and then you have uh, Rise Again or Risorgete, which is another paper, another weekly that promoted a very strong anti-clerical line. Um, and then there was the paper O Ergatis, which was, or the worker. And that was an organi- organ for the emancipation of women and the worker. And it provided primarily for a Greek language readership. Um, say a lot of these papers were tailored towards specific languages. So that Greek, you had um, Italian, and you also had French, um, like Leunion and L'Idea. But despite its polygot character, the anarchist press in Egypt doesn't seem to have included an Arabic language newspaper, which is kind of weird when you're surrounded by Arabic-speaking people. However, Anarchism had regularly featured in the mainstream Arabic newspapers since the, 19, since the 1890s. Usually, however, in reports in the activities of the movement abroad, not locally in Egypt. At the same time, there were also journals like Al Muqtataf and Al Hilal, which carried articles discussing the origins and development of anarchist thought and practice. It seems as though in 1897, there was also a figure who engaged with socialist ideas, but that particular um, publication seems to have been closed down quite quickly by the authorities, particularly for featuring the work of Salama Musa and Shibli Shumayil, who were two Egyptian writers who were clearly influenced by anarchist ideas. Something that just occurred to me is that what it could be influencing this is that the Italians and the Greeks and the French and all these different people who are writing about these anarchist ideas in Egypt, it's possible they, they had 
a bit more leeway when it came to the local authorities that locals themselves would not have. Their foreign status may have provided them with slight immunity in comparison. And this is just me spitballing, but it's possible that Arabophone writers and speakers would be taking on significantly more risk if they were to agitate in the same ways that these, you know, migrant workers were advocating. And then there's also the component, uh, that's speculation, but there is the proven component of financial difficulties and limited literacy rates among the Egyptian population that made it difficult to distribute um, Arabic language material uh, related to anarchism. You know, because a lot of the workers in Egypt who spoke Arabic were not literate. Um, what did help though, because, you know, the anarchists were about that life, um, they would go to cafes um, and read the newspapers out loud to reach their target audience. <laughs> the first podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The first podcasters for real. Uh, as the anarchist movement in Egypt is really commemorating important political events, celebrating the principles through posters, leaflets, and flyers, um, celebrating the anniversary of events like the Paris Commune and May Day, uh, to really spread that message of international solidarity among the workers. Um, anarchists in Egypt were also very fond of showing solidarity to their international figures. Um, like Francesco Ferrer, uh, who was a very influential Spanish anarchist thinker, who did a lot of work in the field of anarchist education. He created Ferrer schools, which influenced figures like Emma Goldman to create their own modern schools in the US and elsewhere. Um, and he was arrested and then executed, which led to a lot of protest, both locally and internationally, uh, making him something of a martyr for the anarchist cause. And so the outrage expressed at the execution of Ferrer was not simply just a protest against the attorney, but also recognition of his status as an advocate for secular education, which is an important vehicle for, you know, social emancipation. Before Francisco Ferrer was executed, though, anarchists in Egypt were already working on educational programs. In fact, they launched their most ambitious project, the Free Popular University, or Universita Populare Libera, or UPL, in Alexandria in 1901. The UPL aimed to provide free evening education to the popular classes and received, you know, great support across Alexandrian society. Uh, courses included, you know, the works of Tolstoy and Bakunin, uh, the arts, and pragmatic topics like worker negotiation strategies. However, the UPL's radical nature also brought criticism, with the Italian authorities initiating legal proceedings against a UPL lecturer for some remarks he made about the assassination of the Italian king, Umberto <laughs> I. Uh, I, of course, leave you to speculate what those comments and remarks may have been. <laughs> but despite some initial public support, its critics accused the UPL of being based on depraved principles. <laughs> now, I mentioned this school before in the episode I did on Islam and anarchism. And like I said in that episode, Arabic speakers were quickly marginalized from the education and the UPL gradually became more aimed toward and controlled by upper-class interests. In fact, within a year 
reliably bourgeois elements had wrested control of the UPL from its anarchist founders and had wrested control of the UPL from its anarchist founders and proceeded to transform it into a vocational college that, among other things, taught shorthand, accountancy, and languages. So despite its very brief existence as a revolutionary project, the UPL marked an important movement for anarchism in Egypt and inspired other movements seeking educational reform. The UPL's impact and vision influenced Egyptian, Egyptian nationalists who established the Higher Schools Club in 1905, which also emphasized educational means for political purposes. Anarchism in Egypt had a significant impact on the development of the labor movement. As a new working class emerged towards the end of the 19th century, anarcho-syndicalism emerged as a powerful force advocating for formal collective organization as the instrument of social revolution. Of course, Egypt's labor movement wasn't entirely new, as guilt had been part of the traditional Ottoman order, regulating trade and providing mutual aid. But the modernization efforts of Muhammad Ali, no relation, and Egypt's integration into the international capitalist system changed that landscape affecting the role of guilds and shaping the working class. Foreign workers, like I mentioned before, came into Egypt alongside native Egyptian labor. Um, but despite the differences between them, evidence does show a strong cooperation and collaboration between the groups. The native Egyptian working class was affected by a variety of factors, but there was a model of collaboration that was emerging between European and Egyptian workers. The Cigarette Rulers Union, for example, was initially a Greek body in Cairo, but later became more inclusive as their successful strike in 1809-1900 marked a milestone in Egyptian industrial militancy. However, their subsequent strikes fixed However, subsequent, subsequent strikes faced brutal confrontations with the police, leading to divisions among the workers. By the end of the first decade of the century, the Anarcho-Syndicalist International Union had emerged as a significant force based on universalist principles and international solidarity. The optimism for the future of a socialist centre in Cairo was a reflection of the broader movement within the working class led by anarchists and syndicalists. Anarchism first appeared in Egypt among Italian political refugees and workers during the 1860s. Nurtured by a developing international network of labor, transport, and communications, it expanded beyond Italian circles to attract members from across Egypt's diverse communities. Through heterogeneous, through the discourse of radical social emancipation and propaganda and public action, Declaring the universality of humankind and decrying the evils of capitalism, state power, and religious dogma, the anarchist movement would come into force in Egypt's history. In the years after 1900, anarchist syndicalism played a central role in the development of the labor movement, articulating the rights of workers in struggle against capital, against capital and promoting internationalist activism. Yet while it rejected Yet while they rejected nationalism as an organizing principle, anarchists did at times make common cause the nationalists against imperialism and, argu and arguably had a reverberating influence on the strategies and tactics of the nationalist movement. That's all I have for today on this brief moment in Egyptian anarchist history.
but I hope uh, it illuminated a very interesting uh, chapter and context and sphere. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's another kind of important broader lesson from this that is, I think, mostly forgotten, which is that, you know, from fr- from this period of, I don't know, r- roughly the late 1800s through about 1917, like in most parts of the world, except for basically like Western Europe, or not even Western Europe, like apart from basically like the Germanies, if you're talking about socialism, there's like anywhere in the world, there's a very, very good chance the thing you're actually talking about is anarchism. And, you know, there, there's been a sort of systemic attempt by both liberal and sort of later communist like historians to sort of like wipe the historical record clean and make it look like everything was always sort of like the sort of onrush of Marxism. But like that just wasn't true. And they were very powerful uh, anarchist movements on every continent. And they did a lot. They did a lot of really interesting things. And yeah. Yeah, that, that really needs to be respected and recognized, and it hasn't so far. Uh, so hopefully this, and if folks check out the book, um, they can get some more insights on some of the other actions that were taking place uh, in that time. Again, the book is Anarchism and Syndicalism in the Colonial and Post-Colonial World. Um, it really illuminates a lot of that lost history. Thanks for joining me and Mia on this episode of It Could Happen Here. Again, you can follow me, Andrew, uh, on the YouTube channel, Andrewism, and support on patreon.com slash St. Drew. Take care, y'all. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It it could happen here. Uh, yeah, that, that's the podcast that you're listening to. It's also the thing that is happening. The thing that is happening is it is a kind of rough time to be a trans person in the U.S. and also in most other countries. And, you know, we, we do we do a lot of episodes on this show about how it's rough and why it's rough and the specific things that are happening. But also sometimes we do we do the other part of the podcast, which is to put it back together part of the podcast or in this one i this this is more of a, a, a bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old episode and in order to talk about uh doing that we're talking to samantha medina who's an organizer for donut workers united and also the coalition of independent unions and shanead who is an organizer for the ciu and also the iww and yeah both you two welcome to the show hey thanks for having us good to be on great to talk to both of you um and so the specific thing that, yeah, I wanted to talk about today is the Trans Day of Solidarity that is that is being organized in Portland right now. And yeah, I wanted to, I guess we should start with what what is this the event? Who is doing it? And then we can get into why it is being done. Sure thing. Um, so the Trans Day of Solidarity is an event being put on uh, right now by the uh, Coalition of Independent Unions. Um and it's an event that's basically about both celebrating uh, trans people in the labor movement and the workers' movement as a whole, um, highlighting the importance of workplace and union organizing for trans communities um, as a way for us both to survive, but also to struggle towards our own liberation. And finally, it's a way of uh, it's a way of sort of us clarifying how we can start using workplace struggle as a means of um, turning the tide against the current genocide we face. Yeah, that covers most of it. Um, I, I think the only thing that I'd like to add is uh, a lot of what this event uh, is around is bringing awareness to the trans community and specifically our experience within the labor movement and on the job. And it is a way, as Sinead mentioned, to kind of like highlight exactly what unions do and can do for trans people while at the same time also giving us a moment to remind unions that they should be doing more even if what they're already doing is great they could always do more 
And especially in a time right now where trans people are facing the discriminations uh, particular to us across this country right now, and as Sinead mentioned, the world, but, but focusing on the United States, um, it's really important that the, the avenues that are there to protect us are aware of how to protect us. So I think this is our opportunity to kind of remind unions to step it up a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think I think another thing that's kind of important about this in particular is, yeah, you know, both a bunch of you two are <laughs> intimately aware of this, but I, I don't know if overrepresented is the right term, but like trans people, like literally right now in particular, are effectively the vanguard of new union organizing. They are, you know, enormously like quote unquote, I guess I guess overrepresented or whatever if that's the word you want to use in in you know a, like among union organizers, a lot of. Actually, and, and this I think is a, a, you know another thing I'm excited about for this is that like y'all are kind of like at the forefront I guess of like what <laughs> the new sort of union organizing stuff is and how it's how it's sort of you know how 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 it's been working and so like that the the fact that this is like the one place where there's actually a lot of us and that you know is 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 is, is a place where there's enough of us that it actually matters is important and that you know that 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 works in a lot of directions at the same at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's good to, to acknowledge that, like, yeah, there are a lot of trans people that are organizing their workplaces. There's a lot of trans people taking part in their unions. And, uh, you know, a lot of that, I think, comes out of necessity. Like, if we're not there to discuss our needs with these unions um, or to create our own unions out of necessity, where, like, maybe our cis coworkers don't understand the struggle that we face on the shop floor. So by reminding them, we're able to make it better, you know, like all that's great and true and everything. But I think it's also really good to acknowledge that like LGBTQ people in general, uh, whether they just be uh, uh, trans or otherwise, uh, have been organizing and organizing their workplaces for decades now. So I think a lot of this, like, yeah, we're seeing a lot more trans people involved, but we're also seeing a lot more recognition and visibility of yeah. trans people uh, than ever before. Right. Well, and, and part of the reason we're so involved is because it's a matter of basic survival, right? The average trans masculine uh, and uh, non-binary person make about 70% of the median U.S. wages, whereas trans feminine people make 60%. And this is below, like, compared to cis people, you know, that's that's wild, right? The level of homelessness, of of discrimination, of job loss, of hours being reduced, punishment, of sexual harassment on the job. It's just, you know, it's it's unconscionable. And it always has been. Even in the good days, it was yeah. garbage and miserable and, and honestly took a lot of us out. Yeah, um, and I mean, you know, like part of part of the thing with that run is like that all of that has knock on effects, right? You know, if if, yeah. if you can't get a job and the jobs that you can get pay less, a lot of this forces people, you know, like the the rate of homelessness is unbelievably high. People get evicted constantly. And this, you know, and this, 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 all of this ties together with sort of like trans housing struggles because that's a huge thing. And yeah, the consequences <laughs> of this is like, yeah, a lot of, a lot more of us end up dead. And the way that we don't end up dead is by fight, is by fighting. And one of the places that, you know, like one of the places we've, gotten good at is fighting in the workplace absolutely and i like i mean i'm talking from my own experiences you know um as an organizer and um as an iww member for god 17 years now like wow yeah it's like i think about all the major campaigns that i've seen and all of them all of them have had trans people at 
as core organizers for each and every shop, from the canvassers' strikes to Burgerville to any number of like fast food shops and service sector shops and retail shops. Like it, every single time, there are folks that are are trans that are playing key roles, um, which is given that we're what probably between two and four percent of the population at least uh you know at least according to current estimates probably gonna be higher but you know that's shouldn't be possible that is shocking that makes no sense (laughs) except for the fact that well survivability bias motherfuckers it's this or we're dead yeah, like, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the very sorry, well said. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it, it, I mean, that is the blatant truth, right? And I mean, like, even if we're not talking about life and death, I mean, it's the difference of whether we have access to a bathroom to to, to use. You know, and it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, you know, like, we, it, like, yes, of course, this is also about life and death. And but, like, you know, I think another thing that trans people face lot is like access to healthcare or really the, the lack thereof access to healthcare yeah. and especially yeah. healthcare that will actually get us you know the the medication that we need to be on or the surgeries that we need because again these are uh, issues that help with dysphoria and we all know the statistics on how dysphoria affects uh, people of all ages and that is again a matter of life and death so like i don't think it's wrong to not sugarcoat that statement yeah <laughs> right and and there's another side to it too is that like this is also a point of community this is a point of actually like folks from you know it's meeting up with other uh, trans folks but it's also like working together with other like with cis coworkers and friends right this is a point of belonging and togetherness and of being able to really be there for your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers in ways that like and to be a part of community which is something that we're, is often stripped of us right? Yes, it's about survival, and it's about what we need to do in order to keep breathing, but it's also about what we need to do to live, you know, to go beyond survival, to have joy, and to have enough money to make it through, and, and, you know, maybe be able to actually have something for ourselves, maybe be able to not have the constant anxiety, but instead spend more time being happy about who we are. It's easy to overlook that, but... I don't know. Again, uh, biased sample source, but almost all my <laughs> fondest memories are from being side by side with my fellow workers, right? Absolutely. And I think also, you know, like time's gone long enough now where, you know, trans people are starting to be something that people are aware of, something that people are talking about, whether that's in the best ways or not. We're, we're at least more visible <laughs> now than we've ever been. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think like, Organizing in general, community in general, uh, whether that's, you know, community uh, within the city you live in or within your workplace, you know, like a lot of our success at being able to live the lives that we want to have or be the people that we want to be and be respected for that really does come down to our family members, our coworkers, our friends, and ultimately complete strangers who we need to rely on you know i i I hate to use the word ally but we need our allies more than ever and uh it's about time that they step up too and that starts typically speaking in your community and in your workplace i think it's also really good to address the fact that like 
you know, when we're talking about trans issues and organizing around them and like organizing your workplace and your community and all that, like it's it's also important to acknowledge how intersectional the trans experience is. And that's something I, I really wanted Damn to address got talking about uh specifically about unions and things like that because also unions are an incredibly intersectional piece of politics and life that we need to appreciate because when we talked about these statistics affecting trans people they affect uh disabled trans people and black and brown trans people at much much more so much higher rates then they affect white trans people. And I think that unions being something, and not just unions, I mean, every aspect of organizing and, and community building really needs to pay attention to this. But I think this is something that is so ingrained in unions that unions have been fighting for this sort of uh, protections that are, are are very intersectional, you know, like, like it, it, whether they're pr protecting women in the workplace, whether they're protecting uh, black and brown people, whether they're protecting disabled people or whether they're protecting trans people, that is a large part of why unions were established. You know, we talk about wages and working hours a lot, and that is all fine and dandy and it's wonderful. And that's something that is a, a, a base core value of unions. But I don't think it's celebrated enough how much work unions did in equality in this country. And I think this is just a continuation of that tradition. And trans people just happen to be one of the largest topics right now. And we tend to have one of the largest targets on our back more than we've ever had before. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's why we discuss unions in relation to this, because for, you know, working class folk, that's where a lot of our organizing begins. <clears throat> Yeah, and I, I think I think it's actually honest. It's, it's had an interesting impact on the kind of union organizing that's happening because, you know, like one one of one of the sort of consequences of transphobic discrimination in workplaces is that you get a lot of trans people in what is. I okay. I refuse to call it service sector. I'm gonna. There's gonna be a whole episode that's me yelling about the term service sector that's coming to a recording thing near you. Specifically, like job jobs in fast food, jobs that are very low wage, like high turnover things, and particularly fast food's been very interesting because that's a that's a sector that like a lot of trade unions just completely ignore. Like they just gave up on, and you know, like they've been starting to organize like Starbucks in the past few years, right? But like. You know, like if if you want to look at the people who've actually been trying to organize fast food workers, it turns out it's a bunch of trans people because 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 who, who works because who actually does this stuff, right? Turns and, out, turns out, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to be said about that, like with, with larger unions and and larger unions, especially within the trades, have done a lot of great work, you know, and that's that's lovely, and I, I appreciate them for that. But on the other hand, they really did turn their back on the service sector industry for the silliest reason possible, which is that high turnover is just too difficult. And we want to talk about people. Yeah, it's just too difficult. You know, who who wants to organize something difficult, right? Like, uh, that might cost too much money or not make them enough money. And which I find highly hypocritical of unions in general. I, I mean, like not of all unions, but like if that is the stance that unions will take to not organize the service industry, being a union seems to be exactly why you would target those industries, right? Because those are where workers need it most. And yeah. 
if we want to talk about high turnover rates being the reason, who do we think is affected the most by high turnover rates? You know, like it is hard to find a job as a trans person, let alone keep a job um, for any length of time. There's oftentimes no upward mobility for trans people in that job. And so you face a variety of life issues when you're not making enough money, which inevitably leads to you losing your job and adding to the high turnover rates in these companies. This is exactly why, and we can get into, you know, what we've been up to and what we're doing later, but that's exactly why the CIU and the IWW and other organizations like us do what we do is because we believe in helping the workers that need it most, who are underrepresented and not taken care of by the larger unions. Because we are those youth workers, right? I yeah. mean, that is the thing. We're able to do this and put, you know, I mean, we'll put the fucking hours in because that's us. We're doing mm-hmm. this because it's the only way out, right? So, like, when we schedule something like, or, like, create an event like the Trans Day of Solidarity, um, we're doing this because both on the backbone of years of experience, but, like, especially, like, collectively, um, but also bringing in new organizers because we knew how we can think back to how we were brought in, right? We can talk, mm-hmm. t- uh, think back to our friends, our allies, and our especially our trans fellow workers who were the ones who mentored us um, well before the tipping point in a lot of cases, right? Um, because mm-hmm. this is why we're here. And like thinking about who this affects, right? I mean, like it affects trans people deeply and it can cut off our access to the healthcare that many but not all of us very much need to keep going and the threats above us you know only increase as the like you know the oppressions you face are are increasing right if you're a trans person of color if you're disabled like you were saying right like shit gets worse it gets harder the sword over your head dangles a little closer so we work to figure a way to get out from under it it's also like why the Trans Day of Solidarity, like when we talk about this, it's it's an event that that is what it is because it's designed to not simply be us just speaking into the wind, but it's meant to be a practical thing, right? The the whole event itself is is like a rally with you know trans speakers from you know a number of different uh, shops and unions in town, um, but it's also then just quickly becomes just a flying picket. Right, and this is a tradition that I think we do miss a little bit in this country. Um, the flying picket's an old one, and it's a it's a <laughs> fucking goldie. Um, it's where you get a big old mob of people, and you just start going to places all over your town and throwing fucking pickets. It's everything you love about a breakaway march, and also <laughs> a picket at the same time. Uh, it has a direct economic leverage to it. Uh, you can do, you know, people. It's, it took a minute, uh, but and you know this is also coming from someone who is organizing primarily in Portland, so there's a certain bias here. Your locale may va- vary, but if you organize enough pickets in your city, people might cross them at first. They get a lot less likely to the more you do them over the years. So the more pickets you throw, the less likely people are to cross them, and if they are not likely to cross them, that impact that you know increases their impact. So you know we're going to be given our speeches, sure. And we are going to speak to our experiences. That's critical. And then we're also going to ruin some people's day or, you know, make their day if you're the workers. Yeah, we'll ruin, ruin some bosses' day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just all, always the best kind of day. <laughs> to ruin. <laughs> well, and it's also part of the reason. 
<laughs> Listen, should bosses have good days? I'm going to go on a limb and say no. Never. Ever, yeah. ever. You want to? I mean, how many good days do we job? have at work? Yeah. <laughs> Damn straight. At the bare minimum, you get at least one less good day than us. And you know what? You know what? If the bosses don't like having these bad days, then they can just go find another job. You know? Exactly. Like, I, it's, it's not that Listen, big a deal, right? They could actually contribute to their communities. <laughs> you know, do yeah. some real work for a change. Which in this yeah. case is uh, sometimes just working a fucking tail. Because that sucks. Love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking speaking of things that suck, uh, we need to take an ad break. Uh, <laughs> this is the best ad pivot I've been able I've been able to think of in the last like six minutes. So we're taking it right now. <laughs> now we're gonna get this good again. And we're back. So one one of the things that I, I also wanted to talk about is. About, I guess, just talking a bit about what the Coalition of Independent Unions is and how it sort of formed and, yeah, I don't know, the, the sort of potentials therein because it's, it's a really interesting organization. Coalition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the CIU, uh, it, it, it's got a long history if we really dig deep into it. I mean – Effectively, this idea started uh, after organizing within Portland for the last, gosh, I think people people have been organizing here forever. But let's say, uh, how long ago did Burgerville Workers Union start, Sinead? Um, Let's see. We oof, there's That's a question. Uh, <laughs> if you want to talk about the official date we went public, sure, 2016. If you want to talk about the antecedents, you'll find it in the Industrial Research Organizing Group. Uh, precarious workplace. Um, no, it was low wage worker subcommittee uh, <laughs> in the Portland General uh, Membership Branch of the IWW, circa August of 2013. Incredible That's names, by the way. Just oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Oh, honey, honey, I'm a wop. Do you know how many fucking acronyms do we have? Oh my god. Listen, the number of things I had to take the GMB when I was BST, despite not actually being the T part of BST, only T part I'm not part of. Oh. I could tell you about the GOB and the GEB until the cows come home. But the point is, they're antecedents. The CIU is a relatively new organization with deep roots in Portland. Um, it kind of came out of the flurry of independent unions that kind of uh, – in fast food, service, and retail that, that, that flourished in the wake of the um, Burgerville Workers' Union. Um, Burgerville Workers' Union itself – uh, goes public in, God, that was April of 2016, because of course it's been that fucking long. <laughs> it was in the works a while before that. Uh, God, oh, all those meetings. Um, <laughs> the earliest antecedents are arguably um, the Portland General Membership Branch of the IWW's uh, Industrial Organizing Research Group, the precarious worker uh subgroup or maybe it was the low wage worker subgroup circa august of 13 but that's antecedents right this kind of goes public this itself is built on you know the the jimmy john's workers union especially around the twin cities and uh earlier in the uh the the 2000s um and then of course before that the starbucks workers union um that had multiple different campaign flourishings. I think the earliest in the late 90s, early aughts in New York City. 
um, on which, honestly, uh, you'll see some articles mention this, on which the foundations of the modern uh, Starbucks Workers United now rests. Um, so what we've seen now in the wake of all of this shit, right, is you have an incredibly militant working class coming forward. And they start popping off. They're not waiting for permission from any org uh, to just start fucking organizing their workplace, sometimes filing for, for uh, union elections, sometimes not. Uh, the ones that have been filing for contracts, there are – I have complicated feelings, but there are real gains you can make from contracts, right? That It is a lot easier to, to get certain victories than you can in others. Now, there's also limitations, right? But uh, the CIU comes from – uh, a number of different unions um, coming together, uh, you know, Don't Workers United, a few others, to uh, basically like actually preserve, you know, democracy in their workplace, to pool resources around, you know, uh, trainings around contract bargaining and elections, um, as well as to rely on each other for direct uh, for direct action assistance and things like that, um, and you know the the um, IWW has also got a thread in all of this, but yeah, it's it's essentially a series of like, you know, we're not trying to own everything, right? The CIU exists as a platform uh, for all the different types of independent union activity that are occurring, right? And to create a basis on which we can actually start talking to each other more, to cooperate and interact with each other, right? There is more of a contract focus uh, in the CIU. So, you know, I'm, I'm a wob with experience in dual carding. You know, you have your contract union on the one hand and your fighting union on the other. Um, and this allows folks to sort of approach union organizing and labor organizing from any level of experience uh, and any number of backgrounds, right? And I think that's the real strength of the CIU is not to instead to constrain um, the upswell of worker militancy, but instead to give it a place to help put down some roots while also allowing even more militant struggle to to intertwine within those you know growths. So I think that's a really great explanation of the CIU and how the CIU formed and, and the purpose that the CIU provides to workers. Um, all uh, I mean, so far the CIU is growing rapidly. Uh, we've been talking with a lot of workers, um, and and primarily in Oregon and and in Portland, but even workers outside of that uh, purview. And I a lot of hope that the CIU is going to be able to to help unionization in a way that other unions are not willing to at the moment or are having difficulty breaking into. Um, and so far, so good. I mean, I think we have, gosh, I think there's like at least trying to do the math right now in my head. I do lose count sometimes, but I think we got about six uh, different shops involved in the, the CIU currently. Um, Six including my shops. own. Exactly. Six public shops, including my own. No, no, that's fine. Oh, no, no, no. That's perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, honey, there's shops. so much more to come. There's so oh, much oh. more to come. Oh, they're going to learn why we picked this city <laughs> for the CIU logo, all right? Um, uh, crows, baby, crows. <laughs> um, but uh, it's going really well. And we have a lot more campaigns that are going to go public in the future. Uh, but one thing that we really noticed while organizing all of these campaigns uh, and, you know, whether we ourselves organized them or whether we had a hand in assisting them organize themselves throughout the city. Uh, one thing that all of us various organizers started to realize is that we represent 
a large amount of trans folks at all of these jobs. And now some of that can be chalked up to the fact that we live in Portland and we kind of live in the trans Mecca. So of course you're going to come across a lot of trans workers, but here's the deal that we kind of noticed is that trans workers, regardless of living in Portland, Oregon, or, you know, the fact that we have so many trans people living here, uh, for a lot of reasons I won't get into that we all know, which is why we moved here in the first place. Um, uh, refugees. We're, uh, let's be real. It's runaways. We are refugees. refugees. <laughs> yeah. But we noticed that there's a lot of trans workers working, as you reluctantly put it earlier, uh, service industry jobs. And not just service industry jobs, a, a variety of jobs, but most of which are, you know, minimum wage, poverty wage, let's be honest, jobs that offer almost zero upward mobility for trans folks. And so that's the thing that we started looking at is the ladder. And as you go up the ladder, you see less and less and less trans folks. So down here at the bottom, working, you know, fast food jobs, working sweaty donut jobs, working, you know, in, uh, I mean, the restaurant industry as a whole, I think, is is a lot of who we assist, um, as well as, you know, potentially some grocery store workers and uh, other people like that. <laughs> uh, we, we we don't have a whole lot of representation in our workplaces that we make up, you know? I mean, we can look at some of the larger industries in town that do provide unionization for workers, and there's many, but, you know, I think it's easy to look at, like, a lot of the auto industry or the warehouse industries and things like that, and, of course, they have trans workers, but it's an overwhelming amount working within the service industry. And so as we started organizing more and more service industry shops, we started realizing that we are representing a lot of trans people. And what's really important to us is that if we're going to be representing trans people in the workplace, then we should give them a platform and a voice to be able to speak about their concerns and their issues that they haven't otherwise had. And that's why the CIU decided to put on this action, you know, uh, and we chose it uh, when we chose it for a very particular reason. And, and to be honest, we thought about doing it over Pride weekend. And I think that would have been lovely. But on the other hand, you know, Pride is about a, a celebration of existence. And there's a lot of visibility during Pride already. So we kind of stepped back. We reflected on that for a little bit. And we decided that Labor Day uh, is not exactly a, a time of year where you hear about people talking about LGBTQ rights and trans rights. I mean, of course, there's a little bit of that going on. I'm not trying to say that there's none, but it seemed like a really great opportunity for us to host this event over Labor Day weekend and give trans workers, the working class, an actual platform and a voice to express their concerns, issues, and give their thanks at the same time to the unions who represent them, and like I said before, could represent them even better. So this is our way of reminding them. And also at the same time, the follow-up picket, um, reminding Portland that if you don't take care of your community, and specifically in this case, your trans working class community, then we will make ourselves heard. And you will listen to us one way or another. And if we have to take to the streets in order to have our voice heard, we are more than happy to do that. Red the promise, black the threat. That's an old slogan, but again, it's one we really need to bring back. And city birds. City birds are very important in all this. <laughs> I, I, oh, nothing is more important than that on this episode, but... <laughs> listen, listen, we're in Portland. The, the obligatory crow conversation is just part of the bargain. 
the Labor Day weekend tends to be very important because uh, this is when a lot of retail and food and entertainment business uh, happens. And frankly, um, given, you know, the whole genocide, we decided we were going to help, uh, you know, show the power of organized labor by throwing a bit of a wrench into that, right? So why we chose Labor Day, getting into sort of like what the Trans Day of Solidarity is, um, we're going to be having a uh, a speaker and a rally at 4 p.m. at Pioneer Square in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, September 2nd. This is a huge, huge weekend for food service, for entertainment, uh, and yeah, for retail. And while we're having trans speakers from a number of different campaigns and unions speak from four to, you know, wrapping up at around five, uh, we're then going to start moving uh, on a mobile picket line, a flying picket, all over downtown Portland, because we need to bring joy to a lot of workers and ruin a lot of bosses' days. This is leverage, and we'll use it. We'll just cost them as many, you know, as much money as we possibly can. Um, we'll be hitting a number of different stores. It looks like we'll be hitting, uh, well, you'll see at the march. But we'll be going all over the city. We have everything covered in terms of needs and amenities. Uh, there's going to be chants and leaflets. There'll be medics aplenty. There'll be uh, all sorts of safety concerns that will be addressed by uh, our organizers on the ground. So please, come one, come all. Um, we actually should have a marching band. Uh, that'll be pretty fun. That I didn't expect to land up, but it'll be a union marching band, no less. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, we love to see it. <laughs> it's going to be pretty great. So, uh, if you like uh, trans people and making bosses cry, uh, you should come to this. Uh, what time uh, if we uh, do this, is it starting? Again, 4 p.m. the uh, at Pioneer Square in downtown Portland. Uh, and then we'll be uh, doing the march throughout the city from around 5 o'clock. And uh, I do recommend to folks wanting to uh, come out to the event, um, be ready to chant. Bring your walking shoes because we have a bit of a trek ahead of us, making bosses miserable across town. And uh, make some signage. Bring bring picket signs. Bring you know, in, in picket signs in support of both trans people, uh, working class folks, union workers, or just reminding bosses to stop being shitheads. Uh, whatever you want to put on your sign, it, it's lovely. Um, I will give you a hint as to one of the locations that we will be picketing. And I think it's okay for me to mention this. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make sure to pick it, uh, the world's worst tourist trap. Um, also <laughs> one of the absolute, That's just most difficult, <laughs> one of the absolute most difficult, uh, union struggles that I've ever been a part of only being one so far particularly, but you know, it really irks me. So anyways, if you're interested in that. Come on down, and uh, you can see the world's worst tourist trap on your way. <laughs> and for people who are not in Portland, I do, I do want to remind people, it's, it's probably not enough time to do it this year, but you too, you too can have a Trans Day of Solidarity. You could also have it 
on a different day, we could have one. We, we look if if we planned this correctly, we could in fact have three hundred and sixty five days of trans of trans solidarity. <laughs> we could take all of the days. I don't know. They, the cis people can have like the leap year day or something like that. <laughs> we'll, we'll give them. We'll give them February twenty I mean, ninth. <laughs> we already have May Day. It's called you know. There's no need for a second Labor Day. I really feel like if we keep doing this every year, we can just take it. Yeah, we can we can get rid of fake Agreed. Labor Day and make it uh, based Labor Day again. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's Trans Labor Day. I mean, I don't know. That's a lot. I mean, I'm only visible one day of the year, and I only remember things one day of the year. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't hey, know. Hey, okay, um, okay. There's there, there's one day. We got one day of pride. There's like. Isn't there like a bisexual visibility day or something? There is one. There is oh, yes. yes. Bisexuals only appear for it's, one day. A it's year. at least three days. We know four. There might be four. There's like two other trans ones. We 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 could possibly have a full five days that we that we that we're visible <laughs> in. I, I'm just gonna put forward that like, listen, if you also want to, you know, and if you can get something together for Sunday, September third, we could just make Trans Day of Solidarity followed by Trans Day of Wrath. You know, because yeah. if the picket line has to go too long, well, you know, we get mighty ornery. Well, and, and also, okay, like, I, I have been watching you all make, oh, it's wrath month, oh, it's enough pride, it's wrath time jokes for too long, and there has been not enough wrath, so I'm calling for more wrath days. We need to actually do the day. <sighs> absolutely. Oh, so, we organize your workplace. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Organize your workplace. Find, you know, and if you find out that, like, the people that own your company are fascists or helping to fuel the genocide, organize even harder. Help get friends involved. Have them try and get on jobs to help take those motherfuckers down. Remember, there's so much you can do to cost the people that are trying to kill us a lot of money. While also making your lives so much better. So, do your part. Hope to see you all again. Uh, well, not again. I hope to see you all there. And uh, again, it's going to be September 2nd, 4 p.m., Pioneer Square, downtown Portland, Oregon. And uh, uh, be there for the rally. Listen to people's voices. We, we are doing this for a reason. It's important that we give trans folks a platform and support us on the picket line. Um, we would really appreciate to see you there. Oh, uh, you can also find a link to all this on uh, the Coalition of Independent Unions Facebook page. Um, we also have an Instagram. You can find us on just just type in Coalition of Independent Unions or CIU. Yeah, well, we'll put, uh, we'll you can put find, links to that uh, in the description. Perfect, perfect. Yes, well, and uh, there's yeah. And if you need any more information, please feel free to hit up either of those accounts, and we'd be happy to inform you on whatever you need. Yeah, and with that, uh, wishing everyone a happy Trans Day of Solidarity. Uh, if you're a boss, we're wishing you a bad Trans Day of Solidarity. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, everyone, go go out into the world, make more Trans Day of Days of Solidarity, make more bosses sad, make workers happy. Uh, this is this is within your power to do, and yeah, go go into the world and make mischief. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. 
And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, it's me, James, today, uh, and I'm joined by Julia Messner uh, from Sea-Watch. Uh, uh, she's one of the spokespeople for Sea-Watch. Sea-Watch uh, are an organization that rescues, Mediterra- uh, rescues migrants in the Mediterranean. Uh, Julia, hi, good morning, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for your invitation. Yeah, not good morning for you, I guess. Um, could you start off by explaining to us perhaps what Sea-Watch does and, and why there's a need for it to do that as well? Yeah, of course. So Sea-Watch is a civil sea and search and rescue organization. So we are trying to save people from distress at sea in the Mediterranean Sea. So you can imagine the situation being very cruel at the European external borders right now. So far, more than 2,200 people drowned only this year while trying to flee 
um, to the European Union and the cover the area we cover people are mostly fleeing from Tunisia and Libya um, for example to Italy but also trying to reach Malta for example so what we are trying to do is actually really um, rescuing by with ships so um, currently we have two ships one is uh, prepared at the moment for its first operation and the second one had just had rescue on the weekend and is now currently blocked in Italy and on the other side, we also have monitoring airplanes um, surveying the area and trying to monitor the human rights situation over the Mediterranean and trying to monitor, firstly, state violence, but also, secondly, trying to give information when the airplanes are finding um, boats in distress then to for people being rescued. Okay. So there's a lot there, I think, that we we should probably break down for people. Um, and the first thing, I think, is you said that one of your boats is blocked. Uh, now, yes. maybe people won't be familiar with with the way that certain European countries ha have reacted to uh, the migration coming across the Mediterranean. So can you explain what blocking constitutes? Yeah, so uh, in Europe, um, since like since a few years and several years, we also see an increase in ultra right uh, wing movements and also ultra right governments. So what is happening now, um, especially in Italy, where we are operating from, is that we have a ultra right wing government under mm -hmm. the president Giorgia Meloni installed, and the government is currently trying to hinder civil sea rescue because um, it's a way to actually hinder and also block migration. So in the beginning of the, of the year, for example, there was a, a decree put in place that really makes it so much harder for us to operate. And at the moment, um, after our rescue on the weekend, we are blocked for 20 days, meaning that we cannot go out and do our usual work in the Mediterranean. But our ship has to stay in port because Italian authorities are claiming that we violated um, the decree, which is actually going against international law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think when you say that they're trying to hinder uh, migration in the Mediterranean, like, like that's quite a, a, a nice way of saying it, I guess, because what this means is that they are making that migration even more dangerous than it already is by not allowing people to be rescued. Right. And as you said, it's, it's already incredibly dangerous. Uh, and the mortality. Yes, correct. The Mediterranean Sea um, is uh, a graveyard. Um, like, as I said, more than 2,200 people died this year, um, yeah. only crossing and thousands of people died since 2014. Um, like numbers, uh, can be seen like uh, with the IUM, so the International Organization of Migration, for example, mm -hmm. that are monitoring also the, um, situation in the central, central Mediterranean. And what this place or the, this external border actually constitute, constitutes mm -hmm. is a crime scene. A crime scene again uh, for crimes against humanity because uh, states states are like purposefully, really intentionally um, letting people drown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's tragic. It, it's really horrible. Um, can you explain a little bit about like the way that I guess just the mechanics of people crossing the vessels they use, where they uh, like the, the journey? If people if people have seen the Mediterranean at all uh like depending on where they live obviously they might live on the med but if they don't you know maybe they've seen beaches and, and beach holidays in spain or something and obviously that's that's not all of it so can you explain a little bit about the conditions of the crossing 
Yeah, so people are, uh, or like people that we rescue mostly are trying to um, flee from Tunisia as well as uh, Libya. So the situation in Libya, for example, is really horrible. It's very violent. There's a lot of documentation um, of um, uh, torture camps, uh, of rape, of murder, uh, of uh, slave trade. And people um, that comes, come from the sub-Saharan region are, and are trying to flee to the European Union are crossing Libya, for example. Mm -hmm. But also in Tunisia, the situation at the moment is very dire. Is um, It's very... Um, racist uh there's like yes. a racist um um violent campaign started uh, by the tunisian president in the beginning yeah. of the year especially so we see a lot of institutional racism we see a lot of racism and also a lot of violence on the streets so uh, people are really trying to flee from the country and people um, are using all means possible, of course, because they have to. There's no easy way to come to Europe. Then people fleeing cannot just take um, a train or an airplane, actually, and then um, like trying to uh, reach shores of the European Union over boat is their only means. So they're really forced to do that. And boats that are used are, for example, inflatable boats, but also metal boats. And th these metal boats, especially, are very very dangerous because they are only like constructed um very really not in uh, in good condition so they're really easy um to sink um so mm -hmm. as soon as water comes in these boats are actually sinking so people are also mostly not wearing wearing life vests so it's really dangerous the people like the number of people on the boat um is way too high for their capacities so most boats as soon as they go on to sea they, they are actually in distress and they are in need of rescue okay yeah and then let's talk about some of the rescues that sea watch has, has been able to do um because some of them have, have resulted in the really big numbers of people you've been able to save right i think there was one in, in 2017 which was 50 something people is that right uh, yeah, I mean, could very well be 2017. I didn't work with Sea-Watch, so I don't okay. know which rescue you mean uh, exactly. Yeah. But for example, just now on the weekend, we yeah. rescued 72 people actually wow. out of distress um, yeah. at sea with our ship Aurora. Okay, so let's talk about like what that rescue looks like. I guess what happens is maybe they um, the aircraft spots so the ship is in distress. Is that right? And then your ship can respond and go to them. Yeah, for example, there's also another uh, organization, it's called Alarm Phone. They are like a distress hotline where people in distress at sea can call. And they are also giving them the information to all ships uh, in the area and, of course, to authorities. So um, on the weekend, our Aurora actually first supported another civil search and rescue ship from Open Arms with their rescue and then um, was uh, led to, the to this particular distress case also with the help of our um, monitoring flights operations, um, which are called Airborne. And um, the people were then rescued on Friday as said, 72 people. And then um, normally what you have to do is, of course, um, inform the, like the competent authorities in the area, so state authorities, and according to international law, then state authorities have to coordinate 
the rescue. So we, of course, um, communicated, communicated with authorities and authorities only after a while actually um, assigned us to the port of Trapani. So Trapani is uh, in Sicily, on the island of Sicily, and it was much farther away than the nearest port, which was on the island of Lampedusa. So um, you have to imagine, of course, at this stress and the rescue cases are very um, um, dangerous situations. And people, of course, need immediate support and need immediate um, transfer to the land where medical help um, can like intensely happen, etc. Because people might be on sea for several days. They might be on in psychological, but as well in physical pain and, and stress. Um, they might have burns from actually a uh, fuel and seawater uh, mix, for example, and of course dehydration is a very, very uh, big danger and risk for people on, in distress at sea. So um, after we rescued and after we got assigned the port of Trapani, we made very clear to the authorities that Trapani is way too far and that according to international law, we need to go to Lampedusa because it's the most su suitable nearest port. Um, but then we got noticed that we uh, are not allowed to go to Lampedusa, actually. And that meant that we were in total forced to stay on sea for 37 hours. Um, and also for those people in distress um, and rescued, they were forced to stay more than 24 hours additionally on sea, like having to really endure those really uh, difficult, this really difficult situation. Um, the next day, Saturday, we were still on sea. Um, the sun like really burned relentlessly by that point, and people were facing uh, dehydration. One person actually fainted, and it became really increasingly dangerous, the situation on board, um, which is why uh, we communicated communicated more and more with authorities uh, and um, they were then forced after a while to let us enter to Lampedusa because the situation was really dire and people needed to disembark, disembark on land. And yeah, I think that's a really good summation of like some of the, the sort of like hostility you encounter from states. Another thing that Sea-Watch has encountered, at least in the past, is either negligence or like interference by state agencies like at sea. I'm not sure if it was the Navy or the Coast Guard. I think it was maybe the Coast Guard, the Libyan Coast Guard had interfered with a rescue. Um, this may have been before you started, so it's fine. If yeah, but the, the so-called Libyan Coast Guard is an yeah is a uh, an actor uh, that is really violent, violently intercepting people that are trying to reach European shores and mm -hmm. also violently interfering with rescues of yeah. civil search and rescue ships. So we saw, um, for example, um, shootings uh, like shootings in the air um yeah. like in the direction of our airplanes but also in direction of other search and, uh, search and rescue ships for example we saw intimidations we saw uh, violations of international law and human rights by the so-called libyan coast guard because um what is happening is that the european states the european union is actually supporting the so-called libyan coast guard to intercept people at sea so to really block people from getting to the european union yeah and it seems to be like a, a strategy throughout the european union right it's rather than supporting people as they come, making this journey less dangerous. They're, they're trying everything they could do to keep people in North Africa or, or to stop them coming to Europe. 
at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We see this on a very practical um, uh, level in the Mediterranean Sea, but we also see this on a political level. So with externalization policies, with deals with Tunisia, for example, just yeah. recently, there has been a deal between the European Union and uh, Tunisia with um, a lot of money involved to actually um, trying to block migration again and to increase the support for the T Tunisian Coast Guard, for example. Um, but we also see a lot of political talks between Italy and Libya. Um, Libya is also now a former colony of Italy, so there's a very close ties and uh, ties and a lot of influence. And just um, a couple of days ago, um, there was uh, the transfer of um, two ships um, from Italy to the so-called Libyan Coast Guard. So they really also, um, yeah, supporting um, this very violent, very dangerous actor uh, with technical means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and obviously, like. And people who listen to all our episodes will be aware like there's increased violence in the Sahel. There's now like large scale protests in Syria this week. Like it's not as if the, the, the people will there will still be dangerous situations for people to flee. And, and what the EU is doing is making that dangerous journey more dangerous rather than sort of accepting that it's a thing that happens to humans and, and trying to make it less deadly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like it's a very uh, politically induced situation. And we are or like the European Union is supporting human rights crimes, like with the money of the European Union, human rights crimes are actually committed. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw um, deportations from Tunisian authorities uh, of people on the move to uh, the, the Tunisian Libyan border, so to the desert, and people were actually left there to die, literally. Another way that you guys encountered state-level hostility is with these legal actions, right, that, that have been taken against you, against Sea-Watch, against individuals who are part of Sea-Watch and against vessels that Sea-Watch owns. Can you explain yes. some of those? Yeah, so for example, I mean, the most recent one with the blockade of our ship. So mm -hmm. it's blocked, um, like according to state authorities, because we, uh, or they claim we um, violated the Italian decree that I just uh, talked yeah. about. Um, and um, they actually said that we uh, had to request a port uh, in Tunisia and bring people back to Tunisia, which would have been completely against international law because Tunisia cannot be considered a safe port or uh, a safe country of origin. So um, now um, we are uh, yeah, in the process of like waiting for the Aurora actually to be de-blocked again. Um, but also um, it Italian authorities are, of course, uh, trying to criminalize um, person, like persons. For example, in the case of Carola Rakete, who was a captain with us uh, in 2019, and who need, like who had to enter also the port of Lampedusa because of the very very difficult situation on board because the ship was forced to stay several days really on the Mediterranean Sea and the situation became very dire so there was also proceedings against her in person so really people that are trying to show solidarity and support mm -hmm. people on the move to claim their human right um, to claim asylum are criminalized on the basis of uh, um, yeah, accusations that are just completely not true. Carola Rakete, for example, was also, um, like all the charges against her were dismissed. There was no legal ground for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the harassment obviously still hinders your work, right? Even even if the charges are dismissed, like the, the time that the ship can't go out. And... Yeah, absolutely. And it also um, is also... Um, 
a a means to in, like to to implement fear no in mm-hmm. people's minds um because of course it is super scary to be um to be accused by a state to have uh, actually violated law and you are facing charges of uh, years in prison um and like only that fear can already uh, do do a lot but we don't only see this in italy we also see this a lot in greece uh, for example um a country uh, which is also really trying to to criminalize humanitarian and political or like yeah humanitarian workers that are standing in solidarity with people on the move yeah um so people might not be as familiar with the landscape of migration. So maybe you could just explain like where the boats are based because you talked you talked about Greece and I know that um that Maltese authorities have also like bought cases against Sea-Watch. Can you explain like, the different landscape I guess of where your boats are based and and where they tend to sort of end up uh, relocating or, or taking people to once they've been rescued? Well, we take people um, who've been who's been who've been rescued um, yeah. a lot to Italy, um, mm-hmm. but we're also, of course, trying to um, coordinate with Maltese authorities, who also mm-hmm. have the legal responsibility to take people in. But Maltese authorities or Malta, the state, is actually really uh, irresponsive. So uh, we really see um, as little engagement of the country as possible. We see a lot of uh, um, hindering of migration. We see very um, special cases with Malta, where Malta Maltese authorities are actually, for example, um, communicating to merchant vessels who are finding or who are in vicinity of distressed cases that they should just hand out fuel to the boats or hand out water. So they those distressed cases, those boats are actually making their way to Italy on their own. So they are out of Maltese responsibility. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just kind of passing the buck along. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so sad and and, uh, how similar so much of this is to the way the US deals with people coming across our land border, which is often yet yeah, to to say they have they boot them back to Mexico, which again is a violation of international law and it's not a safe place. And, and again, people in the US have been criminalized for providing drinking water to people in the desert, right? Um, and it, even if it doesn't work, it scares people. Yeah, and it's like definitely it's not only a European um, kind of situation; it's a situation at borders in general, mm-hmm. yeah. um, because uh, borders are in the end a con- like a construct. Um, to uh, yeah, to safeguard in like per, like I don't know how to say it, like in um, quotation marks. Yeah. Um, your uh, apparent space. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and to kind of yeah, I don't know, enforce some kind of notion who who's in and who's out and who's the other and who's the same. I wonder. Like, one thing that people will be wondering is obviously Sea Watch is a large scale operation with quite substantial assets and uh. It, it, people may be wondering, like, how is Sea Watch funded? How do you get? You know, you need experienced captains. You need maybe uh, people who are experienced in in rescue operations at sea, pilots. So, where do all these people come from? 
Well, like they come, I mean, also from the general public, we have so many volunteers that are working with us really. Also, um, we have uh, people that are um, writing us and uh, trying, like, trying to support. And of course, like everybody can, like, or anyone can have a look at the website. We have uh, job offers on the website usually as well. And like, if you want to support really um, have a look and also try to reach out uh, in case of any questions and like see what and also um, other civil sea rescue organizations are really sustaining themselves and are financed by donations. So we are solely financed by donations and we are really like trying to keep the, the work up as much as as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, we have lots of different opportunities as well to support not only uh, by working with us, but also in spreading our message on social media. So that's maybe the easiest for everyone who uh, has social media accounts. Just like search Sea-Watch and you will probably find our accounts on Twitter, on mm -hmm. Instagram, on Facebook, but also on TikTok, for example. Um, like inform yourself, educate yourself and share the message. Talk to your families uh, while having dinner. Um, talk to your friends and also support really... Um, um, self-organized groups of people on the move. So, for example, you can inform yourself by um, finding refugees in Libya, the group, or refugees in Tunisia on Twitter. Uh, yeah. And they are actually talking about their situation in the country, um, but also uh, like like on, on, on migration routes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder, like, talking about refugees in Tunisia and Libya has sort of reminded me... Um, Recently, we discussed uh, on an episode like the the presence of the Wagner Group in in Africa, right? Specifically, they've been in Libya before. They are now in the Sahel and Central African Republic in different places, and, and how people have reacted very differently to the presence of the Wagner Group in Ukraine to the presence of the Wagner Group in Africa. And I wonder, mm -hmm. like, and this isn't to say that people. I don't want to be construed as saying that people shouldn't have solidarity with people fleeing conflict in Ukraine because they should, and those people mm -hmm. have every right to a safe place too. But has there been a change in in the tone or the, the sort of just the material support for you guys since the conflict uh, in Ukraine grew broader, like grew out of, of the Donbass and Crimea into the full scale invasion? I mean, we see like we are in a situation of like multiple crises now. Yes. Of course, we saw the invasion of Russia in, in Ukraine, but we're also we're facing climate change. We're facing uh, dire economical situations, yeah. etc. So uh, also our donations went down um in the mm -hmm. in the past year definitely but we are still also uh are so lucky to have like a very strong solid like solidary basis uh, of people yeah. supporting us so i think it's uh like it's kind of both a little bit yeah i always think like with respect to the solidarity um I've never really seen, like every time so the, there's a, a larger scale crisis at the southern border of the United States, right? Like a, um, recently the United States government, very similarly to what you were describing, was keeping people in the open desert um, and, and leaving mm -hmm. them there for days without food or water. Uh, and hundreds of people mobilized to help them, people who you might not expect to be particularly radical in their politics or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in sort of direct action people. But they were great and everyone helped and as a result, no one died. Uh, one mm. young woman died in Texas in, in CVP custody. And, and like, I always think if people could see it, then, then they, like you were saying, if they can see your videos, people, there's a very human response to never want that to happen to another human being. It's just hard when there's, there's so much going on. 
Yeah, and also it's I I think it's completely understandable that we like not every person can concern themselves mm. with all the topics, all the uh, yeah. all the crisis situations we're facing right now, and like no one expects that of us, but we can expect of states because it's their duty um, that like they are taking care of people actually, and they are really uh, trying to set the base for everyone to uh, like to claim their human right and it's states themselves that actually like wrote down those human rights because of a certain situation so i mean especially in europe we really have like we're just considering our history is just considering the history of germany we just like it's it's blatant ignorance and also completely against any historical evidence against any historical work we've done uh, what the situation now is and what we're actually doing at the external borders like committing human rights crimes and like ignoring the situation and actually like increasing the dangers for people on the move uh day on daily basis um yeah. and i think I mean, it's not only, I mean, you also mentioned this before, no, like it's also a situation you're facing in the US and we really have to like build strong um, transnational movements and strong transnational ties to like work against uh, state violence, border violence in general. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent point that like this is part of a broader kind of state violence that, that everyone should be opposed to. Like it, it hurts everyone in the end. And yeah, as both of us being European people, we've seen that. Like very obviously, but we, I don't know, governments seem to have forgotten. One thing that you mentioned that I wanted to talk about before we finish was climate change, because you, yeah. you said, you know, we obviously like the, it, it's very hard for someone living in Europe or North America this year to, to pretend that climate change isn't happening, like with soaring temperatures, hurricane in California, wildfires everywhere. Um, can you explain a little bit? Because I think one thing that people fail to connect is and maybe that's largely due to bad not bad reporting perhaps but like it doesn't get mentioned in reporting when we talk about migration we don't talk about climate change when we talk about climate change we don't talk about migration but the two go hand in hand right like the people certainly many of the people that i see at our southern border are coming from areas most affected by climate change and is that something that sea watch sees too like as as parts of the world that are more marginal for people to to live in get even harder to live in are those people coming you know being forced to leave i guess Let's look at, uh, at science now and about, uh, at research and um, like millions and millions of people more will be forced to flee because of climate change in the next in the next years. We can't deny that fact. And we as European states and European societies are a big part of why um, this is actually happening and why climate change is increasing in the in the speed um, that it is increasing right now. So we have a huge responsibility uh, to take care and like to support people actually on the move. And I mean, as Sea-Watch, uh, we don't make any difference as of why people are fleeing. People are in distress yeah. at sea. People are uh, being rescued. Uh, yeah. That's it. That's the only um, like responsible. Like that's the only perspective we have supporting people that are in distress at sea. Because uh, if you are calling an ambulance, they also don't ask. Oh, hey, why are you actually calling the ambulance? Uh, like, did you? Yeah. Uh, did, did, yeah. Why are you yeah. in this, this in the situation? The ambulance is just coming, and this is this should also be always the case uh, in the Mediterranean. Yeah, 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 or anywhere else people are at sea. Um, so I wonder, like. The last couple of things I wanted to ask you are more broad, but you spoke earlier about um, the rise of right-wing governments and movements in Europe. 
And um, when we like obviously talk about the history of the right wing in Europe, um, we think about fascism. And uh, I know people who listen to this podcast will be very invested in like their their history and and current struggle of anti fascism. And would you say it was fair? It would be fair to cast what Sea Watch is doing within the broader spectrum of of opposing fascism or opposing, I, I guess, of nationalist state violence, right wing state violence. Absolutely. We are um, part of an anti-fascist movement. We are anti-fascists by core. So um, we definitely define ourselves as anti-fascist activists. Yeah, nice. Um, and I wonder, the last thing, that people want to show the solidarity, you you mentioned some ways. Um, is there anything in particular, like, I know people have contacted me about volunteering for Sea-Wish before and I've directed them to your website, but um, when we do have a lot of listeners in, in Europe and uh are there particular things that you're looking for in, in volunteers? Obviously, anyone can donate, and they should if they have money. But uh, what are you? Is there certain qualifications you desperately need? Or mm. so I mean, we are of course always looking for people that are uh, supporting our operations um, mm-hmm. in, um, especially on sea, but also with our airplanes, of course. So um, if you have uh, captain's qualifications or um, other um, qualifications that allow you to go to sea uh, and sail. Uh, or engineering qualifications, for example, or medical um, qualifications as well. We're always looking for nurses, for doctors uh, supporting on the ships. Then please uh, just like have a look at the website and reach out. We have a specific form as well where you can just also um, sign in for interest, basically. And then our crewing department takes care and sees uh, like who and like when uh, it's actually fitting. Okay, yeah, that's great. Hopefully some people can reach out. And before we finish up, is there anything else that you'd like to share with people that you think we haven't got to? Um, I think we didn't talk about Frontex, for example. At all. Oh, yeah, so let's Frontex. do it. Let's, yeah, explain Frontex yeah. to people. Yeah, so Frontex is uh, the European Border um, 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 Protection Agency, um, yeah. so-called, actually, uh, or Coast Guard and uh, Border Agency. And Frontex is, uh, surve- is also surveying um, and working on the Mediterranean Sea and um, co- like um, responsible for um, for um, border protection uh, specifically in general, or it actually has a double mandate. So border protection on the one side, but also uh, Coast Guard duties, Europeans on the other side. What we criticize is, of course, that Frontex um, does so-called border protection and does not actually support people on the move and people in distress. So this double um, mandate does not work at all. We see a lot of non-coordination, a lot of a lot of non-information, and also a lot of violence of Frontex. So, for example, uh, Frontex. Um, oh, there was a report from Human Rights Watch, for example, um, that Frontex is uh, um, um, complicit in in pullbacks by the so-called Libyan Coast Guard because there is actually communication between Frontex and the so-called Libyan Coast Guard. Um, and the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, Coast Guard can then detect boats in distress, their location with this information by, provided by Frontex and bring people or force people back to Libya, for example. So Frontex is really an actor that uh, we criticize hugely and that we actually um, um, working towards their abolishment. Um, because um, how the organization or the institution is working right now um, does not have anything to do with uh, with legal rights of people. Yeah, and it, people will be, we spoke uh, with uh, Ruth Kinner, who, who's a professor at Loughborough, about um, lifeboats in the UK, because the, the UK 
has a notionally dist- uh, it has a very real distinction between like co- rescuing people at sea and doing border enforcement and, and those two are different things um yes, and, and, different. Uh, yeah if people uh like it, it's also in in Kropotkin's book mutual aid he talks about the value of like lifeboats and volunteer organizations such as your own mm-hmm. that um like it's very foundational to people talk a lot about mutual aid but this is like one of the i guess like foundational examples of it um so like can you explain what a better system and obviously i'm not asking you to like solve all the world's problems but like uh what would what would it uh we can make relatively few changes i guess and make this so much more humane and not have someone's little children drown in the mediterranean so that i don't know people don't have to live next to someone who speaks a different language from them or whatever people's fears are of migrants um can you explain what that would look like i mean we need freedom of movement uh, that's for sure. Like, and this is also one of our basic demands. We need um, freedom of movement for everyone. We need people to uh, have legal and safe pathways to Europe, so safe passage. Uh, we need a system that, in accordance to the needs and the wants of people, people are actually also uh, redistributed over the European Union um, and like can join their family members, for example, or their friends, their support systems um, while uh, trying to flee uh, violence, while trying to flee from places where they ca- cannot live in the end. Uh, so this is really like what we are focusing on in the end uh, to have people um, coming to Europe through safe yeah. passages. Um, so, and this is really what needs to be established. And of course, in this current situation, as a first step, we need a European um, coordinated search and rescue program with the only mandate to rescue boats in distress, to rescue people in distress, to actually make sure that the situation, the death trap that the Mediterranean Sea is actually constituting at the moment stops, like this situation has to stop immediately. Yeah, and it could start very quickly, right? Like the, the level of resources that states have available to deploy, it, they could make this go away uh, very quickly. Yeah, and- they, they could if, uh, if they wouldn't be uh, actually focused on externalization and blocking people to come. Yeah, and uh, I think, like, I don't know, when you think about the, the fact that that's a conscious choice and the results of that, it's very, very sad. And- and it, yeah. I mean, in, in the UK, we seem to just talk about it openly now. Like, like they have whole campaigns about stopping small boats. Uh, but mm. yeah, I think people need to realize that they're like, it's not boats that they're stopping; it's little children that they're consigning to to risking their lives. Uh, yeah, it's children, it's women, it's men, mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah. non-binary persons, it's everyone yeah. um, who wants to reach safety and everyone deserves to be rescued everyone deserves to be to live no questions mm-hmm. asked yeah no i think that's a wonderful place to end actually because i think it's a no, hard statement to disagree with uh can you what are your twitter handles where can people find and, and follow sea watch sea watch crew okay and that's all over that's your url as well um yeah so website. um let me have a, a look so I'm not saying saying yeah. anything um, <laughs> wrong. But Sea Watch right. Crew, so at Sea Watch Crew, all yeah. Um, yeah. together and us in small, is actually our German account and our international account is at Sea Watch um, underline int, intl for okay. international. Yeah. And then we also have an Italian account for all Italian speakers. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we'll make sure that we link to those two and. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, This this afternoon, your time, morning, my time. Thank you so much for the request and for talking to us. Yeah, of course. 
Teen Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart, and you can't spell falling apart without Republican Party, or at least several of the letters falling that you, party. you use that for that are also in this. Garrison! Hello. How are you doing? Good, Over good. Over Garrison in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, I just got back from a visit uh in portland where we watched many upsetting things uh back we did, to back we did. to back we did watch a lot room. of upsetting things yeah probably the most upsetting of which was the first of the 2024 republican primary debates. yeah yeah boy it sure was nice watching those indonesian war criminals reenact their crimes really cleared 
cleared my uh, my my mind after uh, watching the Republican debate. Yeah, that was that was a really good palate cleanser. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, th- this is not uh, the most timely thing because we didn't want to just like do a reaction podcast where we talked about. Here's what we thought about, you know, the Vivek's answer or uh, anonymous white man number four's answer to, you know, these various questions. I thought um, Chris Christie was very put together, very uh, on, <laughs> put, on, on topic. On message. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, we wanted to look at like wait for some polls to come out and, and actually kind of both talk about what happened and kind of what worried us and also how it seems to be playing uh, with the base and the American voters uh, in general. Um, Because all of this matters because, again, the Republicans are – I mean, we are all a little bit the architects of collapse here in our our lovely society. But the Republicans, um, they like to to really pump that shit into a higher gear. Um, So, you know, I think the thing that kind of stuck out to both of us – most and the thing that's been one of the primary kind of takeaways, the one of the, the main things people have talked about after the debate, uh, was was Vivek's um, performance, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is uh, prior to I even made a little comment prior to it that I, I didn't I didn't know much about him or think he was much of an entity in this because uh, you know in 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 part because that's true he was somebody who is just kind of coming onto the scene in politics. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how he started that because there was some stuff I was unaware of here prior to him announcing his candidacy. Um, he He's one of these guys who kind of started, because he, he comes out of biotech. He's a, a quote-unquote entrepreneur. And specifically, he's the kind of shitty entrepreneur who like has managed to get rich largely without actually contributing anything, like primarily buying up uh, patents for for drugs in development that he profits on, but then later are found not to work uh, is a big uh, part of ah. how his, where his fortune comes from. Um, and he started kind of uh, about a, a really about a year ago, I think, trying to brand himself uh, as a as a kind of political influencer, specifically through like social media. Um, and he had been getting a lot of attention um, like as a result of uh, the success of his, because he's he's one of these guys. He's good at using social media. He gets yeah. up to, um, you know, he's he's at a couple of hundred thousand followers when he announces his candidacy. And prior to announcing his candidacy, he had done well enough at kind of building a brand for himself that in twenty two or twenty twenty two, early twenty twenty two, he and the Daily Wire start putting together. Uh, a contract. Um, and they want to bring him on presumably for like a frightening, uh, like a deeply upsetting amount of money to do something that they they haven't really done before, which is just kind of uh, launch a uh, uh, like a show based around him that's like a news and politics show. Which uh, was a little bit different, kind of, than a lot of the the deals that like they've had before, where it's more like you know, here's Matt Walsh's poly- podcast where he's going to you know try to get people killed. Here's Ben Shapiro's podcast where he's going to get angry at the Barbie movie. This was like we're launching a news and culture, like a news and politics podcast, and Vivek's going to be like the face of it, right? Yeah, um, with like act like attempts at actual like a political analysis, mostly from like yes. a libertarian perspective. Yes, yes. And so so that's the idea. Um, and kind of midway through after, you know, a, a significant amount of time in development. And according to kind of what uh, Jeremy Boring, who's the, the CEO of uh, 
uh, Daily Wire said, after they had spent a bit of money kind of working on sort of the concept for this, he backs out rather suddenly. Boring later said his priorities were changing and we could have chosen to be aggressive about it. We did spend a little bit of money on the prep that we've been doing. Um, like, so I think there's a little bit of bad blood there actually between them. Um, but he he bounces from this deal with the Daily Wire to announce his 2024 campaign run. Um, and this seems to have kind of started uh, in early early part like earlier on in this year uh start of 2023 when he he has this meeting with a small group of co- what are who were described in this ABC news article as conservative operatives uh to discuss his exciting plans uh, I'm going to read a quote from that article I'm going to run for president Ramaswamy said on the call Ramaswamy pitched himself as a candidate who could make serious waves in the Republican primary at the meeting. When met with some skepticism, Ramaswamy argued that his candidacy could also dissuade Florida Governor Ron DeSantis from entering the race, according to a source who was on the call. In the lead-up to his announcement, Ramaswamy would tell several other conservative activists that he believed that if he ran, it could stop DeSantis from running or impact his viability as a candidate if he did enter the race, sources said. His campaign has turbocharged Ramaswamy's social media presence, with his number of followers on Twitter, now known as X, nearly quadrupling, ballooning from a little over 236,000 prior to announcing his candidacy to now nearly a million followers just six months later. And so, you know, there's a couple of things that's interesting to me about that. One that he sort of, he he pitched himself as, I can stop DeSantis from running. And it's a little unclear to me if these are guys that specifically like hate DeSantis or if it's more, they don't want him running against Trump. They don't want like a fight between those two guys. Yeah, and they want to like saying, postpone his political tra- trajectory a little bit. And it was also, you know, before the debate, it was kind of looking like, because he was, he was creeping up on... Uh, 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 DeSantis yeah. in like the last couple of polls before the debate, taking and, and beating him in a couple of states, um, which was was interesting. You know, it was kind of looking like it was working. And then in the aftermath of the debate, we'll talk more about polls later and we'll talk about other candidates, but it looks like he's kind of either plateaued or lost a bit of support, even though a significant number of Republicans, most in some um, polls, think that he won the debate, Yeah, um, which is interesting to me. Now, when you and I watched this, kind of the thing that that concerned us was that we both saw him as sort of messaging to the Nick Fuentes crowd. Uh, and what I mean by that is young conservative activists who are at least willing to dance with explicitly white nationalist ideas and who have some sympathies with the insurgent right, including with acts of violence committed by the insurgent right. You know, and obviously Vivek is not, he's not Nick Fuentes, he's not a Nazi, he's not going to make jokes about the Holocaust, but he does talk about certain things in a similar way, particularly this idea of like, the fact that immigration is is altering our national character. He talks national about identity. National is the, identity. Is, is the thing he kept yeah. saying. Yeah. Which is something you hear a lot, sometimes in more explicit terms, from these like basically these Nazis, right? So it's it's kind of a he's taking this term and he's washing it a little bit. Um, yeah, and, I mean, he, he throughout the debate, he definitely was like very quick to betray himself as like the most conservative person on stage. When, whenever yeah. there'd be a question about like. Like, how extreme are you on this topic? You know, yeah. like, they didn't phrase it that way, but that's essentially yeah. what they're asking. Uh, he was the first person to, to raise his hand every time. And he, he did it very enthusiastically. Yeah. Many of the other people on stage 
had a lot of like half raised hands. Yeah. Uh, we both noticed that DeSantis, before raising his hand on a certain <laughs> question, looked both ways yeah. a, 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 across the stage to see who else was raising their hand before he raised his. But every single time, um, uh, uh, Vivek was the first guy to like jolt his hand up. He was very, it was very, uh, uh, very uh, intentionally positioning pos positioning himself as the most extreme option on the uh, on the table there. And it, it wasn't just, I think, the content of what he was saying that that made kind of parallels between him and people like Nick Fuentes or just kind of younger, cons younger conservative, uh, like content creators and influencers. It was also like the way he talked, like the, the his, his, his speech pattern, yeah. how, how fast he was. Very he, he, high school debater. Yeah. 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 It, it just, it, it's, it, it was reminiscent of all of like the horrible shit that I watch for my job. Like whenever I have to like uh -huh. watch through a whole bunch of like, like like Zoomer conservative content creators, it was it was it was that, but now on the debate stage, and yeah. this is something I even like kind of talked about in the last uh, DeSantis fast wave thing is like where we are about to hit this big wave of conservative Zoomers who are going to yeah. be starting to run for office, who were raised in this media environment, and they're going to act like all of these kind of commentators that we see on like YouTube, yeah. that we see on Rumble, that we see on Twitch, they're going to be emulating that style. I want to put a pin in that because we're going to come back to this with a uh, with some audio from Nick himself that expresses okay. a similar opinion. But I want to note a couple of the the things that he specifically expressed that I found we, sure. we found very flashy and that I consider to be really concerning. Yeah. Top of the list is the fact that he has openly stated his desire to bomb Mexico. That is a real problem, uh, and the degree to which a significant number of folks on that stage weren't completely willing to put that off the table is deeply concerning. <laughs> um, that's not great. That's a that's a now the upside is that like maybe that's crazy enough that it, it, there's no chance independents will vote for it. But you never fully want <laughs> to say that in America. There's no way yeah, to know. No. no way to know whatsoever. Um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, he has. So Nick and a lot of these guys on the, the fascist youth, right? They're huge into removing people from being able to vote. You know, Nick himself is basically a monarchist, right? Like he wants a yeah. Catholic monarch, essentially. He's like a Catholic monarchist yeah. fascist, yeah. And by the way, this is not a fringe opinion. Um, Michael Knowles, who is one of the major personalities at the Daily Wire, one of the largest conservative news organizations in the country, has just recently went on a rant talking about all the benefits of monarchy and protecting freedoms, by which he means the property of rich people. Knowles is also a tradcath, just yeah. Just Knowles, like Knowles is it's, also a, a Catholic traditionalist, yeah. Um, and so these guys, you know, they both talk about that. And the thing that Vivek is doing that um, is sort of the more acceptable because you can't get up on stage yet at a Republican debate and talk about the need for a king, right? <laughs> like, but you can talk about the need to cut people out of the franchise, right? Um, yeah. You know, Nick being much more extreme and having the freedom to be more extreme talks a lot about repealing the 19th Amendment, taking the right to vote away from women. Um, Vivek is not going to say that, but he did say this. Uh, young people don't value a country that they just inherit. That's why I've said every high school senior, I believe, should have to pass the same civics test that an immigrant in this country has to pass in order to become a voting citizen of the country if that 18-year-old wants all the privileges of citizenship as well. Um this is deeply concerning for a number of reasons, uh, including the fact that any barrier you're put to to voting is going to reduce the number of people, specifically people who are likely to vote for Democrats who do it. Um, but number two, like 
Who gets to determine those tests? Well, we're already seeing the way in which the the state positions in like states like Florida on education are fundamentally changing the amount of information kids are allowed to get. Um, they also theoretically would have the ability to fundamentally change the nature of this test, you know, um, yeah. so that you know you have to express certain opinions um, and be inculcated in certain opinions in order to be able to vote. This is a, a real problem. Vivek, you know, concerns us both for this. Again, we will talk about his kind of popularity in a second, but I, I wanted to because when we 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 both kind of felt, you know, this is a guy who has a lot of that Fuentes energy he's bringing, and so I looked like, what is Nick been saying about this guy? And uh, I found this video from a website you're going to hate called Zoomer National News, Garrison. Jesus um, Christ. It's a Substack that just does different. I think I've actually like, been on Zoomer National yeah, News yeah. before. It's like a lot of clips from yeah, Nick show and stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna start watching this Zoomer National News <laughs> clip because um, there's a couple of points that he makes in the first couple of first few minutes of it that I I think are are uh, unfortunately worth listening to and then discussing and okay. then being uh, unhappy. Yeah, the only person this is gonna be good for is Vivek. It's bad for DeSantis because he can't confront Trump. It's bad for everybody else for the same reason. The only person it's good for is Vivek who's going to get a bigger stage. And that's what I wanted to talk about tonight because it's interesting about Vivek. He's an interesting phenomenon. He's a child of immigrants from India. I think his parents are from India and they moved to Ohio. And... He became a self-made, nearly a billionaire. I think he's got a, a eight-figure net worth, nine-figure net worth. I read on Wikipedia, he's got $950 million. So he's a self-made, nearly a billionaire, first-generation Asian immigrant who, as far as I know, didn't really have a, much of a public profile or any kind of a political presence and just took the country by storm with... Uh, a viral social media campaign. I think people just like what he says. At least that's what it appears to be. And he's been controversial. I think a lot of people like him. I think even people that don't like him have commended him on his campaign, which has been successful. He's competitive with DeSantis. DeSantis had a bigger war chest than Trump. He had a bigger war chest than any, gov any governor in the United States has ever had. I think he had raised $200 million in the last cycle. And he had the support of the Jews and Israel and oh, all his money Fuentes. and he's governor. And Back on his he old He's maybe the again. next best known politician in the race next to Trump and governor of a major state. And so, in other words, he's got all these advantages. And the, this other guy, who really started from scratch, is now competitive with him. And I'll say, too, it is unfortunate his look because, you know... I know that probably a lot of Republicans are not totally on board with, like, a Hindu Indian. And I'm not making any kind of comment on that. I think that's just how things are. Just like with Bobby Jindal or some of these other guys that ran, when I see an Indian guy running with a name like Vivek Ramaswamy, let's not pretend. I think that's, that's also a disadvantage for him, probably, because the Republican voter base is all white. It's 90% white and... Uh, I know that they're, they undertake great pains to convince the world they're not racist but uh, or, or xenophobic or something like that. But, you know, I'm sure they are not in love with that idea. Quite frankly, I'm not in love with that idea. I want a Christian to be president, not a Hindu. 
And I also would prefer a president whose name I could pronounce, like Joe Biden, not Vivek Ramaswamy. <laughs> now, <laughs> all right, that's, that's quite a line from Nick. I think what he's actually saying there, like, I think that's that's a joke, that's quite, right? That's quite yeah. a line from Nick Fuentes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think he's making he's making a little bit of a bit there. I don't think yeah, he, yes, but but yes. uh, and, and that becomes a little bit clear uh, a bit later on because he he talks about. You know, he's talking about their kind of both how impressive, you know, uh, objectively the success of Vivek's campaign has been and how it points to the fact that he has done some stuff right, even while he's saying, I don't think he can win with the Republican voter base the way that it is, which I think is, you know, partly shown by kind of some of these polls that that uh, yeah. have come out showing him losing support. But he, he comes in a little bit later, a couple of minutes later, and he talks about why he likes Vivek, what, what he finds intriguing about him. And I think that this is kind of valuable to hear. It's really more like an advertising pitch. It's like a marketing pitch. It's the it's the perfect stereotype of like a canned used car salesman political pitch. That's what they're all like. Mike Pence, Chris Christie. You could say they're they're like full of shit. Like that's how I would characterize it. They're like another full of shit, conventional, polished politician. And they also all went through the steps. They're won statewide elections. You know, they're all governors or senators, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Burgum, DeSantis. They're all governors. Tim Scott's a senator. And they have that canned, full of shit, polished political thing. Both Yang and Vivek, not only are they not white, they're Asian, children of immigrants, but there's also something that characterizes them that they're kind of like a new type of campaign where it's super smart. When you listen to Vivek, it sounds a lot more like a podcast. It sounds a lot more like a polemical commentator like me or like Tucker or like whoever, like Alex Jones for that matter, although that's a specific sort of thing. But maybe you understand what I mean. They're they're almost talking like <laughs> they're talking to American people who have a higher IQ. So sure, 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 buddy. You, that's, your average podcast listener, your average high IQ podcast they, listener. They sound smart like a podcaster, right? You know, we all know that but, about podcasters. It's 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 super interesting that he made the exact same uh, uh, like mm-hmm. um, observation that we did when mm-hmm. watching when, when watching the debate. We, we like turn to each other. And he's like, "Oh, he's doing Nick Fuentes." Yeah, no, and Nick Fuentes <laughs> has has a similar idea about him. Yeah. Um, so you know, I I can I think he's he really does worry me. You know, as, as we've stated, his his polling isn't better in the wake of the debate. Yeah. But his personal brand has never been better. In that, he's everywhere. Every big network's been having him on to talk about shit. Like this has increased his visibility, not just on social media, but as a, a political commenter and kind of the things that he's saying, because they are so much more extreme than stuff, you know, even a guy like Pence was willing to say, I sure. think that's a real problem. I think it's a problem that's going to be with us for a while because he's very Absolutely. young. Yeah. 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 I mean, like based on some of the poll stuff, like I, I'm not worried about him as someone who I think will be president. That's right. not my concern. My concern yeah. is how he's going to be both influential and he's he, yeah. he's setting himself up to be influential. And I guess even even more so, it's he's like an indicator of what the future of the GOP is going to be. And yeah. that's the big thing that is like yeah. causing me uh, concern. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the type of thing I've been thinking about 
more and more the past year as we've had our first wave of like Zoomer candidates and also, you know, um, millennial candidates that are, that, yeah. that are starting to fill up, fill up offices. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I looked into, I, I went to Nick's telegram too, cause I kind of wanted to see, is there more that he's been saying? And he has actually been sharing a lot about Vivek. Um, one of the things I found was just like Vivek has called specifically for Fuentes to be unbanned from Twitter. Nick is one mm. of the the few people Elon is like, I am not willing to truck with this motherfucker. <laughs> Keep him off of my website. Uh, and Vivek is, is really not OK with that, which does point to like you don't specify that like most Republicans kind of prefer to believe pretend that Nick doesn't exist in public. Yeah. So the fact that he's going to bat for him like this does point to the fact that he sees value and um, he sees a political future in in the people that Nick speaks to for himself. Yeah. Right. He thinks like, this is a, a profitable like very, thing to be in. He's like yeah. very aware of this side of the political. Internet. Yes. Like he's, yes. He's, he's, he, he knows what their talking points are. He's yeah. familiar with how they speak. Like he he he's he's able to understand that this is like an actual like political contingent. Yes, they may not be uh, as reliable in showing up yeah. to the polls, um, mm -hmm. but it is you know as more and more boomers uh, die off. Sorry, yeah, uh, no offense. Um, like, some offense. Is, yeah, these, these are the people that are <laughs> some offense. These are the people that are gonna you know start filling in f filling yes. in the voting gaps. Um, um, the other thing that he shares a lot from Vivek, and there was like the specifically. Uh, a clip from the debate where Vivek talks about like cutting aid to Israel, right? And obviously yes. Nick being the guy, <laughs> I'm right? Sure Nick's look, very here, pro here at Cool Zone, we're not we're not pro the Israeli state, so I'm not against that from a a, a certain point of view. But I'm not for the same reasons that <laughs> no, Nick Fuentes is. Very, very, different, very reasons. different reasons. Yeah, <laughs> Nick Fuentes. Um, but it is worth noting that like that's another reason why Nick likes this guy, right? Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the the core of the Vivek stuff I wanted to talk about. The next thing to bring up is sort of how shit polling after this. Now, as we've noted, there's been like, a, you know, I found an, M an MSN article that was, a, I, I believe it was uh, actually just them republishing a Washington Examiner article. Great. Um, Love to yeah, see it. Yeah, really solid to hear that. Washington Examiner is kind of a, a right-wing rag. Um, they analyzed five polls taken just before and after the debate. Trump saw a decrease in two of those polls and no change in the other three. That makes um, sense. This decrease, it's not insignificant. The, the two polls show him both, Bush him down something like six points, which is not nothing, right? Yeah. Um, but that he's still up by around 40. So it's also not like a sea change, you know? No. Um, it does suggest a couple of things. One of the things it suggests is that there is value to him, especially since it looks like he has lost some of his ability to message and some of his ability to rile people up because of the way social media has changed. He doesn't really use Twitter anymore. You know, he made a post recently, but he made the first post yeah. in, in years. Yeah. Uh, got Elon very excited. Um, but he, he can't really, and, and he, you know, he, he loves to rant on truth social, but it doesn't break through the same no. way stuff on Twitter did. And it's, it's possible nothing on Twitter can break through that way anymore because of how much changed it is. You know, it's not the same Twitter no. that he rose yeah, to absolutely. power on, it's, you know? it's not, it's not, not the same Twitter it was in 2015, 2016. No, not no. even the same Twitter it was in 2020. Like, no, it's, it is, no. uh, uh, been se severely altered as, as a yeah. platform and how it, how it, like, affects real, so, real world events. You know, I think the thing that you're seeing here is that he does have his core, which is 
you know, a third or more of the GOP who will be ride or die for the rest of their lives, presumably. Yeah. Um, but there is a softer chunk of support that is eroded by him. The fact that he's not in the limelight, the fact that he wasn't up there, you know, slinging mud uh, and and arguing and you know talking with these other candidates. Um, and and so yeah, this is this is kind of a thing you could. It's probably a mistake. Uh, I'm not saying a mistake from a point of view of being good for the country, but a mistake in terms of like his campaign that he wasn't up there, um, which is kind of worth uh, acknowledging and probably worth continuing to study. And it may be, it may have the effect of pushing him to take part in some of the other debates. DeSantis has said he thinks Trump will be at the third debate. Who knows? Um, in terms of how everyone else did, uh, DeSantis went up a little bit, about a two-point bump, which is you know, not terrible, but it's also not significant, especially no. given the size of Trump's lead. It's uh, not yeah. the kind of, given the amount of cash burn he's been going through, it's not the kind of raise he needed no. to keep his campaign viable. It, it, it was, it he did not do a performance uh, that people were kind of expecting him to do. I think yeah. everyone kind of assumed he would try really hard to come out as the, as like the obvious front runner. And he mm-hmm. kind of flopped at the debate in, in at least yeah. in my opinion, he came off as very like, uh muted very like low-key yeah. he didn't he didn't really say much one way or the other he was so obsessed with with what other people like like trying to make sure that what he was saying was okay based on what everyone else yeah. was saying on stage it was very weird it was very weird and not the kind of energy that uh suggests i am building a uh a political machine right yeah that no. can carry me into office uh pence went uh, up by about four points to seven okay. percent of voter sense. support uh nikki haley jumped about five points um and I, and i would say i think desantis and pence and probably haley have are in here because they really think they can win um you know, th- there's a couple of those governors and stuff whose names I've I've already forgotten. That so no maybe one they knows felt that who way too. Bergman, yeah. is like Chris, everyone yeah. knows Chris Christie's not going to be the yeah. president. Like we no, all and know he's not this. he's not really run, he's running to get a TV show on MSN, right? Yes, maybe a yes. book deal too. Um, I guess it's possible that's part of Haley's ambition too. I don't really I don't have his greatest sense for what's going on in yeah, her head. Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, how they are all treating Trump is interesting because yeah. they're also all like kind of auditioning to be vice president, but some yeah. of them don't want that job because they're they, and they're they're being like very like like anti-Trump yeah. on stage. But most Christy people and were Haley, kind of yeah, most clearly. people were soft yeah. to Trump. Yeah, um, um, and I, I think Vivek was both auditioning for like the f- future of his political. I don't think he le- reasonably expects to be president this no. election. I think he may think he can win that in the future. And I think he sees this as, look, I'm young and I'm going to start building. Yeah. And he, and if that's the case, then he has done the first thing that he would need to do to be a, a real candidate one day, which is make a national name for himself as a guy in politics. I think he may be auditioning for, um, uh, vice president and Trump recently commented like, yeah, you know, I, I'm not against the idea necessarily. Yeah, he said he was like a, impressed with his performance at, yeah. at the debate or, or some something along those lines. Um, yeah, and I mean the the, the immediate reaction from almost almost every kind of big like influential millennial Gen X kind of right wing content creator person they they were all saying that Vivek like very clearly won. Yeah, um, like all of all of all of the Daily Wire people were very were very uh, uh, pro Vivek and kind of riding that train. Yeah, um, uh, Musk recently, uh, even 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 um uh, even before the debate, switched yeah. sides from dis- from being the DeSantis guy to being the yeah. Vivek guy. Um, so it was a, a lot of a lot of like 
the intellectual dark right type type stuff of like like online tech conservatives and they were all very quick to jump on the yeah the train and based on his performance at the debate they were happy with with his overall uh demeanor and messaging yeah um and uh uh yeah so uh you know again as it kind of stands has anything changed well yes and no like the overall sweep of the the primary Donald Trump is so far ahead that it does seem unlikely that he's going to lose. Um, but we all, we've also seen it's possible for him to bleed support. And if you remember far back to 2015, 2016, when he was in these debates with the the, Repu- the other Republican candidates, he didn't really bleed support. Like he was very yeah. consistently moving forward. Um, so that is interesting. That does suggest some things about how the, the situation has changed. Um and uh, yeah, um, it's also interesting, you know, uh, polls kind of show that that voters did. And maybe one of the reasons why Vivek's performance didn't boost his campaign overall is that uh, he entered into it with the highest expectations of any of the debaters among like Republican voters. Probably this is because, you know, in the speeches and stuff he's been given before, he's a debate guy. Like, that's obvious about him anytime you hear him talk. So I I think people were expecting him to do well. And so maybe it didn't, you know, if people are expecting you to perform well and then you win, it's not as impressive as, uh, you know, if you kind of come come out of left field there. So maybe that's part of why he's not seeing stuff. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is the the stuff that was talked about at the debate compared to what actually Republican voters care about. Um, the thing that came up first in the debate uh, is the thing that is number one, getting inflation or cost under control. Obvious that that's going to be top of the list for a lot of voters. Uh, 44% of Republicans consider controlling immigration to be a primary concern, um, which did come up a bit. Uh, one of the things that pissed off a lot of the Daily Wire crew is the fact that there wasn't really a lot of talk about wokeness um, or trans people <laughs> during the debate. Yes. Um, because that kind of shit is not like fighting liberalism and wokeness and President Biden, like it all gets kind of like lumped together um, and about a third, you know, of the electorate. That's their their big concern uh, among Republicans. Um, it's, it's primary for... It's, it, it, it's primarily for like online clicks and for driving yeah. engagement on whatever Facebook thing you want to do to harass yeah. a school board. It is not the the uh, the prime focus of the yeah. presidential. Uh, yeah, race. and like the issues with trans people and stuff on its own does not come up here as like a major. It's nobody's primary concern among Republican voters. Yeah, like it's these weirdo freaks on the internet. Um, which isn't to say that like they have good attitudes towards that, but like no. yeah, it makes sense that that's not going to be what you put front and center in the debate. Uh, one thing that's interesting to me is that uh, both election security and limiting abortion, which are huge issues and were big parts of the debate, are very much minor sideshow issues for for voters. About ten percent of voters consider uh, of Republican voters consider election integrity their primary concern. About six percent uh, consider it a to- uh, limiting abortion a top priority, which is teeny right like it's not a popular thing they just have to because of that hardcore of the base they have to signal for it vivek was the 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 only person on stage to to claim that climate change is not real yes 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 which was interesting especially as this hurricane batters florida And that's that's uh, deeply negative too, right? The complete denial of reality. The it doesn't take long, and Vivek did not do this. 
But it's not a long journey to go from, I don't believe climate change is real, to I think those fires were started with lasers from space, you know, and yeah. there and versions of that, right? Um, which is deeply concerning to me. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's you know the Republican debate and and Vivek Ramaswamy. That's kind of uh, our our thinking on him as he embraces Nick Fuentes' thought. Um, boy, <laughs> I don't love saying that. Yeah, no, I mean, but like the, 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 my main my my main takeaway from this debate was that this was the, based on uh, Vivek's performance based I on just, the types of- I'm just going to cut out, have Dan all cut out from that. My main performance, uh, my main opinion was this was based. And then, yeah, there we go. Garrison's uh, debate analysis. Thank you. <laughs> no, please, sorry. Away, um, <laughs> based on Vivek's performance was that this really was like the first glimpse of the types of like long-term results of the alt-right era yes. in like actual like organized politics. Yes. Um, it's 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 it is it is it is our first peek at like this upcoming online conservative wave of Zoomers and millennials who are, you know, between my age and Robert's age, who are going to be running for office in the next 10 years, who were heavily influenced by yep. the online alt-right era. Um, and that's very worrying. I mean, we saw a little bit of that with DeSantis's campaign staff sharing sauna yeah. videos. Um, videos that were approved by like a lot of people in his staff. It wasn't. It wasn't just one guy. We 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 have since found out that those videos were like approved, like in in a in a in like a specific like propaganda like chat that these people had. Yeah. I think I think on Signal. Yeah. So like it is it is it is part of like this 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 wave that we're just starting to see glimpses of here. Um, and it's not great. No. Um, I you know it it it. it it remains to be seen, like if these things will actually like pan out in elections. Though I mean, like it, it doesn't seem like Vivek's going to do very well as an actual pre presidential candidate during this race. Uh, previously, when 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 Republicans have kind of ran on these very kind of online topics, like back in the twenty twenty two midterms, it it um, it failed to give them kind of yeah. the return on investment. Um, so it, it's we'll still kind of see how how kind of viable this strategy is. But I mean, we're only going to have more and more Zoomers and Millennials running for office. Like it's it, yeah. As we and saw I, today, Mitch McConnell's literally disintegrating before our very eyes. <laughs> yes. Um, and more I, and more of these kind of old guard of neocons or Trump guys are 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 going to age out in the next ten years, twenty years, and you know, I it's it's gonna we are we we are really gonna see this new wave of politicians come in. It, it is interesting how much of Gen uh, X just. Was, has not been a has not been a generation that occupies office. No, well, again, Garrison, you have not watched enough Mike Judge cartoons, but that was made very clear in the cartoon Daria. Um, okay. Wait, yes, was that, that is him? true. Yes. Um, so I, I think uh, so. I, I kind of want to end. I think the uh, nope, that was not Mike Judge. What What was I thinking? Why did I say that? I'm a I, I I'm a I'm a fool. Oh wait, because it, it, it's a spinoff of Beavis and Butthead. Yes, that's why. Okay. All right, I solved that mystery. Thank God. Now the mystery I haven't solved, and and the thing I want to bring you to is like we've said. I don't. I, I don't think either of us think his presidential campaign has a, a electoral shot. Uh, but what about him as VP? Do you think that's that's likely? Because uh, personally, there's, there, yeah. there's I mean, there's certainly a chance. Uh, uh, there's a chance. Tr Trump has indicated that 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 there's a chance. I, I believe Trump said uh, he's a very 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 intelligent person. He's got good yeah. energy, and he could. Uh, 
and he could be some form of something. Great, yes. great Trumpian dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, I think he'd be very good as as vice president. So yeah, it's which it. <sighs> You know, I think the fact that his 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 overall numbers aren't trending up might hurt him in that. Although, maybe it'll make Trump feel more secure that he's not going to like take anything from him. Uh, you know, although maybe the fact that he has gone so viral would would upset Trump because he kind of seems to have preferred having a non entity as his VP. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know because uh, it know, is my- like. Yeah. My previous prediction was that he would try to get Herschel Walker. That may be kind of out of date now. Levesque yeah. is certainly another one of these guys that that could be in line. Certainly out of out of everyone else on the debate stage, he was yeah. I think the most the most Trumpian and the most like Trump friendly guy. Yeah. Um the 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 one other uh uh election kind of restriction that he proposed that we have yet to mention is to raise the voting age to twenty five. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, on, on top of having those uh, c- civics tests, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it's possible, but it's it's a little too far out to say for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, that is, uh, I think, where we're gonna we're gonna bring her to an end for the night. Uh, yeah, this has been. It could happen here. Until it next time, could, it certainly yeah, could happen. It, it certainly could. Uh, you know, stay. Uh, a little concerned. <laughs> hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.